Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me is my co-host, Cameron. Doop, 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 doodly doop. S- singing a little song? Doop, doop, doodly doop. I'm a little crab. Doop, okay. doop, doop. Mm-hmm. Doodly doop. Lobster crab. Doop, doop, doodly doodly doop, 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 doop. Well, I sure hope you aren't absolutely vicious and murderous for reasons that don't make a whole lot of sense but i'm the fastest creature on land and sea <laughs> doodly doot 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 i i can eat anything at any amount of time doot doot my arms are up in the air doot doot doodly doot doodly doot 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 these guys are great have you ever read a novel that was entirely about that had structural that had load bearing lobsters i think that really is kind of the definitive quality of this book at least it's the definitive quality that i like to think about rather than the definitive qualities that i don't like to think about well there's nothing that happens in this book that does not pass through explicitly (laughs) the threat and grace of Evil lobsters that attack you. That is true. Like, they're they're a thing in the prologue, and they are literally an omnipresent threat from that moment to the very end. Yeah. And, and, and uh, they, you know, they set up a lot of different plot beats. You know, Eddie tied up. But, you know, lobster's the threat there. Mm-hmm. Uh, why can they not, like, keep moving at certain times? Lobsters are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, why can they, uh, how do they stay alive? Lobsters, lobsters are there. <laughs> They're both. It's, it's wild. <laughs> they are both, like, the, the omnipresent threat, but also the thing that allows them to survive. Oh, my God. The lobstrosities yeah. as Pharmacon. It's, yeah, it's, it's, uh... <laughs> It's the cure that kills. Yeah. Well, they they like poison Roland, <laughs> but that means that Roland has to has to work with people in order to get help. And Jesus, if you don't know what we're talking about, this episode is on the drawing of of the three. I can't even get it out. The drawing of the three. The Dark Tower uh, Two. The drawing of the three. Was it the Dark Tower 2, the drawing of the three when it came out? I don't think so. I think that's just, a real question. I, I, yeah. It, uh, in um, Castle Rock, it is just referred to as like the drawing of the three and then sort of uh, in, you know, a, a, a clause later on, like the second book in the Dark Tower series or something like that's mm. not an official part of the title, but it is like, you know, an epithet or descriptor. Mm, got it. Yeah. Just because I can imagine... Like, there's a world in which you could pick this up based on the early covers, mm-hmm. right? And not know it's part of a series. I don't know what that would be like yeah. for someone, but it, it seems possible. 
it seems like it, it could occur. There's um, um, there's someone mm-hmm. in the Castle Rock newsletters who talks about having only gotten two because she didn't get the uh, the first book because it was a limited edition. In fact, uh, that's some historical stuff I can talk about in a moment. Um, sort of the the increasing demand for a reprint of the Gunslinger, uh, but she talks about having gotten uh, the the printing of drawing of the three and reading it and really liking it, but having to like. Uh, project what the first story might have been because she just cannot get her hands on it. And then eventually a friend of hers uh, puts together a little a little hack for her, uh, which is they find out which issues of fantasy and science fiction the uh, original novellas were published in. And they go to the library, they get all of those editions, and then they Xerox out a little zine version of The Gunslinger. Wow, that's what you had to do. Can you imagine... You know, you're like, you want to go read the Malazan Book of the Fallen, right? right? And you got book two in front of you, and that book one is just, it's kind of hard to come by. So you got to like go assemble, you got to go cut it together yourself um, to to understand what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. You got, you're trying to read uh, volume two of the Stormlight Archives, and you got to (laughs) go figure it out, right? Um, I mean, because that's kind of the weird thing that's going on here. I mean, historically, and I guess that you can, you can dive right into it, but the, you know, Stephen King's at the height of his powers. This is this is 86, right? Yeah. Well, 87 uh, is when this publishes, uh, but the announcement is in 86. And yeah, you're very much the height of his powers. Absolutely. Right. And, you know, so he's about to do another weird, like, run of four or something in the same year or three. Um, I can't remember. I know that I know that he's going to have a couple big heavy years, right? Yeah. But, um. You know, and then, you know, Stephen King, new Stephen King book comes out. It's the drawing of the three. It's predicated on a, not its exclusions, but uh, (laughs) on a previous volume that is unavailable. It's still in like a weird little, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. It's it. It truly is like Dan Brown (laughs) releasing a novel (laughs) and then being like, all right, good luck. I I printed a thousand copies of the first one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good luck, buddy. And it doesn't come out for a while. I I don't know. You have more. You have more detail about that. I bet. Uh, yeah. Uh, the so the the drawing of the three gets announced in Castle Rock in February of eighty seven, and that's when the call is kind of put out for uh, you know the uh. It's being run in like a limited edition. It's like $30, I think. You can get a $60 edition that's like slip cased and uh, has a number on it. Um, those numbers may or may not be precisely right, but it's it's a very similar thing to what happened the, with the run in the Gunslinger uh, for the first mm-hmm. one. Um, actually, in October of 86, there was, uh, I noticed in Castle Rock, uh, a reprint request. And there were actually a couple of these as I looked through the issues that I have. So one of the things I said back in that episode is that Gunslinger was kind of this little special edition thing. And uh, it only went mass market uh, in 88. Uh, and the reason for that, uh, that King gave in some interview that I read back for that episode was that there had been a lot of demand for it. And I guess that is true because the demand is showing up here in Castle Rock. Like this is actually a kind of recurring point of discussion over the issues that I have of people like looking for editions of the gunslinger. It's definitely like the hardest one to get your hands on. Um, Mm -hmm. So in 86, or rather 87, uh, uh, Donald Grant, who's like the the sort of like little boutique publisher of both of these volumes, uh, he announces a drawing of the three, 
and people kind of get their name in and this you know uh seems to spur like more demand for the gunslinger uh and so it is in let's see what do i have here in april of 1988 uh that is when it is announced in castle rock that the gunslinger will finally be a mass market release uh weirdly enough the audiobook is released in june and then it's released in print in september of that year uh and it's released through plume which is kind of like the big trade paperback imprint of new american library and um i think i talked about that at the time anyhow uh yeah, so it's like basically a year between, more or less, right? A year between the announcement of Drawing of the Three as its own kind of special thing, uh, and then the actual release of the Gunslinger as a mass market uh, uh, entity, which brings kind of this this sort of experimental side project of King's into his main run of publishing. I think that's sort of like the, the, what I want, if there's anything I want to highlight here in this episode, especially at the beginning, and especially as we think about like Stephen King's career, you know, broad strokes or in, in sort of the big picture. Um, I think that it's interesting to me, at least, that this, uh, little cycle of novels that is kind of like the backbone is of his entire fictional universe and has, you know, all of this kind of fan, uh, energy directed at it. Uh, is almost like this little vanity project that he has to, like, finagle into his regular publishing schedule, right? It's this thing that he does sort of on the side, and it seems like he has to actually manufacture demand for this story in order to uh, start publishing it, like, mass market. Hmm. I mean, you know, it's really interesting to to think about the the publication history behind it or the publication context around it, because... You know, in that Fangoria interview that I talked about, I think maybe in the last episode, maybe the episode before that, he's talking about, he's like, uh, which was 84. He says, yeah, you know, I've been like tinkering away on the second Dark Tower book, you know, on the drawing of the three. I don't know when that's going to be done. And then, and then it's the next release after it. It's really interesting to me how much it accelerated. And, you know, I was thinking about that while I was reading it. And I think I have some reasons why. Um if only because there's a lot of it in this. Mm-hmm. Um, the structure of this book is the structure of it. Hmm. Except it is using parallel worlds instead of uh, uh, oppositional timelines. Oh, that's true. Hmm. Uh, it's the same. And the character development is the same, right? Yeah. Um, we are introduced to a character. They have a key weakness. That weakness has to be worked through, and then they are produced as like a full human being. Um, notably, this book does not have an ending. At all, <laughs> it has no it has no attempt at an ending, really, um, and so it actually neatly dodges the last you know I don't know 120 pages of it. Mm-hmm. Um, if it tried to have an ending, this would be 700 pages. Um, <laughs> but King clearly knows he's like it doesn't matter; it doesn't need to have an actual ending in it. So it's just like a weird conversation that happens. I cannot imagine. Well, I guess so. This is this is uh, just another thing I was thinking about while reading it as I was finishing it last night, which is. Um, if a lot of people read the Dark Tower in sequence, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, you know. That now they're all out. You can read them all. And certainly, when I read them, you know, the the first time that I read them, only the first four were out, and so I, uh, you know, read all four in a row. And then the next three came out all in a whack, and then so I read them when they came out. Right? Mm-hmm. There's a um uh, an ease now of being able to read the series. Uh, what this podcast is really developing for us, or really, you know, that you know, I love to talk about the method, 
you know, the, the idea that reading him in publication order gives a lot of stuff. And one of the things it gives you is an appreciation for how much it sucked to be a Dark Tower fan <laughs> historically. <laughs> I cannot imagine, or I, I, you know, like in the sense of like fulfillment, you know, if I didn't know that I was reading all of Stephen King, like sitting down in 87 and being like, finally, the great sequel to that book that I read, The Gunslinger, that I really liked, and then reading this, which is a different book. Yeah. Right? Like different tone, different type. Completely different writing style, right? I mean, this is King writing 10 years later, you know, mm-hmm. working on this 10 years later. That makes a lot of sense, but it does not easily flow from one to the other. And then being like, well, I guess I'll get another one of these in 10 years. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, I don't know if I would be disappointed. I'm curious if, if you know, in Castle Rock, if, if you saw that people are disappointed or not. But uh, it's a weird, like, little aberration of a book in that way, right? It's just like some stuff that happens mm-hmm. in a world that that kind of isn't developed at all. Um, I think, uh, I I think it's really, I guess I cannot undersell being in the fan space historically, kind of what you just talked about in kind of that dry spell between books, uh, four and then five, six, seven, uh, how much that was kind of like part of the fan discourse in the news or the, the listservs, uh, Mm -hmm. It was just like, when's the next Dark Tower book coming? I can't wait for the next Dark Tower book. Like, uh, that that's the point where I, re- well, obviously, like, the, the communication is happening a lot faster because it's online. But that's where I remember a lot of that sort of talk happening. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, the method of this show uh, really underscores how, uh, I, to, to use just another, like, you know, uh, relevant example. Um, if George R.R. R. Martin... Uh, was taking time between, you know, the the Song of Ice and Fire books in the same way that he is now, but also uh, publishing. And I know, like, he is publishing books in the meantime, but they're all, like, weird companion things and, like, illustrated encyclopedias. Uh, if, if George R.R. R. Martin were publishing five literal other novels, just, like, <laughs> doing other things, that's kind of what it must feel like. And at the same time, there's not as much of that heat to it. Um, and I think that that is, you know, like, uh, gen- generally speaking, I think in the past 30 years, our kind of, like, nerd media consumer culture has just been uh, woefully accelerated. But um, the the things that really show up in Castle Rock are kind of, they're almost melancholy, like the, the requests. And I think part of this has to do with the fact that it's like a, a, a semi-official organ, right? It's close enough to King that like he's publishing things in it and like reading things mm-hmm. and responding to them. Um, uh, but the, the things that show up in Castle Rock are kind of just like melancholy, like I'm a collector and I'm looking for this or like, could I possibly find this for cheap? Uh, one person, uh, and I thought this was really notable, uh, wanted a reprint of The Gunslinger, uh, that was sort of more readily available because uh, a lot of young people read Stephen King. And that was like a specific reason that I guess this person is uh, I think they were like they identified themselves as like a bookseller. And apparently they had a lot of young people, quote unquote, coming to them and trying to get their hands on the gunslinger. So then kind of in line with that, uh, uh, you know, the when when the Dark Tower or when the drawing of the three does come out. Uh, the response to it, uh, by my reckoning, isn't really like, whoa, this isn't what we expected. Uh, the, the tactic that Castle Rock takes, and again, like flagging here, sort of semi-official organ of, of the King apparatus. Um, weirdly enough, the things that get drilled down on, uh, and this is a 
term that comes up uh, very often when people in the newsletter are talking about the Dark Tower. They talk about it as like mystical. Mm-hmm. Like there's this there's a, an interest in King specifically working in kind of this mystical mode. And so uh, in in December, the December 87 to the January 88 issue, which is like a double issue. Um, this is a thing that they did a couple times is that like at the end of the year, they would just have a big double issue for December, January. Um, but in that one, uh, there is a huge uh article slash review on drawing of the three uh but it's not really a critical review or even really an evaluative review it's uh just a a lengthy multi-page piece where the uh author she works through the symbolism of tarot cards in the novel and it's really interesting because what she does is she takes like actual tarot cards from you know the arcana and like works through their symbolism as they relate to the characters, but never sort of works through the fact that like tarot cards do show up in this novel. They absolutely do. And they're also all fake tarot cards, like they're tarot cards that King made up. So there's this interesting thing that happens where like uh, we're, we're going to take like the frame of the tarot card and use that to analyze it, but not work through like what is King doing by making up his own tarot cards, right? We're instead just going to sort of... uh uh take all of these figures from the arcana and kind of like run the uh uh characters from the novel through it to try to understand them with a very much this kind of uh Jungian like uh, a communal myth kind of uh flavor to the whole thing yeah it's uh i read that too uh and it's it's very odd it's like uh it's a real like tumblr effort post like like the in the primordial soup of that right of like, I'm going to find the mechanism that that, that will elaborate the entirety of the Dark Tower. But it comes from this very uh, odd angle that doesn't quite meet up. Yeah. And similarly to that, uh, I noticed a couple of pieces where people wrote in letters or sort of like basically like little theories uh, where like like explicitly like fans in the newsletter are trying to work through like how might the world of the Dark Tower connect to uh, the world of Eyes of the Dragon? And is the world of the Dark Tower the same as the territories from the Talisman? Like, these are conversations mm-hmm. that are being had uh, in the newsletter as well. Oh, and those conversations continue to dominate. Like, they, they're they still happening. <laughs> yeah. Um, today. Well, I Okay. Maybe it's worth uh, talking. I was actually looking there while while you were summarizing to see if I could find like a New York Times review from the 80s or something like that. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder if people either declined to review it or if it's just like buried in the archives and, and has never been surfaced on the Internet. But um, maybe we can find that for the wastelands or, or uh, you know, going forward. But um, this book begins where the last book left off. Mm hmm. Oh, we gotta do we gotta do a five cent summary. Yeah, and it's it's on you. It is. Gosh, I thought we'd already blown through it, but we hadn't. We just talked about those lobsters so much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. This is uh, it's really a book about lobsters. The all right, <clears throat> five cent summary. Five cent summary is uh, part of the episode where we try to summarize the entire novel in a mere five sentences. Um, and, uh, not, you know, as, uh, someone once tweeted at, at us, it is not me struggling to read a Wikipedia summary. <laughs> it's <laughs> off the dome and, uh, not pre-written and unprompted. Well, I guess it is prompted. Uh, number one, let's, let's go. Let's dive right into it. First sentence. 
The last gunslinger in the world goes to sleep and gets attacked by a big silly lobster. It bites him so good that he loses his hand. Wait, strike through. Loses his fingers on one hand and part of his big toe. Semicolon. He gets sick from this. Period. He walks up the bit. Nope. Strike through. He walks down the beach for a while. Comma, not feeling too good. Comma, until he finds a door. Period. Okay. He goes through a progression of different doors and recruits a ragtag team of weirdos from a very specific set of times in the 20th century <laughs> in in our world and not his fantasy world, period. Through the power of bullying, he fixes them all <laughs> and turns them into a super team and then the book is done. That's true. He does fix all their problems, like just by bullying them relentlessly. Yes, that's what being a gunslinger is. So getting a, being a gunslinger is being uh, having intense trauma piled upon you, and you going, you know what? That was great. I love that. <laughs> Uncompromising bullying. <laughs> <laughs> like chasing the man in black across the desert to give him a wedgie. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Turn it, uh, uh, talking to him so long, he he uh, turns into a 360-degree blast process skeleton in front of you, right? <laughs> like, uh, the, uh, well, so I guess let's talk about some, because truly, in a weird way, not a lot happens in this book. I mean, this book is in my, uh, you know, I've got like probably the newer edition, you know, that ties in with the movie and blah, blah, blah. And uh, it is uh, 450 pages right there. Mm -hmm. And the number of things that happen, like discrete events, are pretty thin. Mm -hmm. There's really not a lot that occurs, which is kind of astonishing for how long the book is. Um, But, you know, at the end of if if we remember, and we get these like little intros here, these like little things. Did you have on being 19? In your edition, yeah the the paperback that I got was like the ones that they were doing in the mid the uh, the mid aughts uh, when the mm-hmm. last three were coming out. So I don't think we should talk about it on being nineteen. No. I think we should actually save that until Wolves of the Cali. I mean, I think we talked about it a little bit back in the Gunslinger episode. Oh, did we? Did we already? Do yeah, because it like this is the thing about this is that the on being nineteen gets reprinted at the start of every single book during this print right. run, uh, when the last three books are being made. Well darn. Uh well, refer to our conversation last time. Mm-hmm. And we can revisit uh, it in Kala because I think that it will be worth revisiting it then. Yeah, that that sounds right to me. Uh then but then we do get this argument which is original to it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's up with all of Stephen King's, like, argument, post-argument, all this, like, weird, the afterwards for these? Because this is not a, a normal Stephen King thing. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I don't know where King is pulling this from specifically, but uh, 
to me, with like kind of my background and sort of my uh, way of looking at the world, this feels like a, a twee little affectation, um, maybe done for some some amount of self-seriousness, but also I think a, a little bit of poking fun. Uh, the argument, of course, uh, here does not mean like here's the the argument, meaning like the, the rational argument for or against something that this book is laying out. Argument here is used in the old style, uh, meaning summary, basically, or synopsis. Like when you read Paradise Lost, John Milton uh, opens every book of the poem with the argument, which is just like his summary of like what happens during that section of the book. Um, and here we have that from King, which is helpful because it does let you know like what happened in Gunslinger if you haven't read it or it reminds you it's a you know previously on kind of thing um mm -hmm. and then we do get that little like post argument uh and I don't remember if the Gunslinger had this like the little afterward uh but I do think it's really interesting that here in the afterward we get this completes the second of six or seven books which make up a long tale called The Dark Tower so here is King telling you, the reader, there's more of this if you want it, right? Uh, it, it's like, I think this is necessary, uh, at least partly because King I, King knows he is speaking to uh, a wider audience than people who are very used to the idea of like fantasy cycles or like trilogies, you know, multi-volume works. Mm -hmm. Um, I think he's kind of attempting to, to like, you know, bring some people into the fold there to be like, listen, this is, this is a type of fiction that you may not be as uh, familiar with. And it's going to be kind of this long six or seven book cycle. Um, you know, he's bringing a little bit of the genre out of it or into it, depending on how you want to directionalize that. Uh, he also then says the third, the wastelands details, half of the quest of Roland, Eddie and Susanna to reach the tower. The fourth wizard in glass tells of an enchantment and a seduction, but mostly of those things which befell Roland before his readers first met him upon the trail of the man in black. And I'm not going to read this whole thing. Um, but it's dated December 1st, 1986. So, you know, about six months before this thing, uh, publishes for the first time. And that's really fascinating uh, because, yeah, that is basically what the Wastelands and Wizarding Glass are about. And those are what the books are called. So there seems to be some sort of plan for this series. Yeah, because he talks about it's not here, right? But it's maybe in the afterword where he's like, I have a. Oh, no, it's not here yet. Eventually, in one of these afterwards, he's like, yeah, I've got a I've got an outline. Mm -hmm. For this one. And he actually said that in the Fangoria interview that I was talking about before. He says, you know, I've got a little bit of an outline for what's going on here. So, yeah, these seem planned, mm -hmm. you know, in, in a big way. But also, notably, only planned through Wizard and Glass. Right. <laughs> he says, uh, when, <laughs> I was going to say, later in the afterward, he says, do I really know uh, what that tower is and what awaits Roland there? Should he reach it? And you must prepare yourself for the very real possibility that he will not be the one to do so. Yes and no. All I know is that the tale has called to me again and again over a period of 17 years. Uh, you know, I, I guess one thing that's pretty notable about this to me, too, is that reading this with the end in mind, um, because I, I think I've said before, right, the before we started Just King Things, the last King I had read was a big read through of The Dark Tower, maybe like six months or a year beforehand somewhere before that. So this is probably this is way more fresh in my mind than any of the other stuff that we've read. And uh, what is interesting to me is that having having it, the structure and the kind of 
form of the thing in my head while rereading this, uh, there are some really interesting kind of called shots that that do pay off in those last couple books, and, and they're a little bit more. Uh, the connections are maybe more deep, and the last few books are left, you know, less off the deep end, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, or less of a swerve than people tend to talk about them. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's weirdly enough, and especially things like when uh, Roland's talking about his deck of cards, and he's talking about like the Spider Queen or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's some especially like I was like, wow, okay, that's weird that that showed up here. Um, because notably, unlike the Gunslinger, the the other books have not had like a like a canonicity pass to them, as far as I know. Right. Right. Like, this is the book as it was written, mm-hmm. um, and as it was published in eighty seven. Yeah, this is like one of the first things we get from Roland when he sees like the world of nineteen eighty five or eighty six, wherever it is he first shows up with Eddie, and he sees all these people. Like he sees people reading magazines and like. He is astonished that there's so much paper in this world and people are so wasteful with it. And also, he doesn't really understand what magazines are. And in the first edition of The Gunslinger, one of the things he does until is read magazines. So, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and it's such a weird thing. Like, why would Stephen King be like, that's a thing I need to change? Right. Like, paper needs to be rare. Mm-hmm. Why? <laughs> and- like, uh, why does that matter well it's just i i I just like that at some point between that book and this one he he had just decided right like no i I think i think it's more interesting right it's more fantasy like i think if roland Mm -hmm. uh has attitudes about paper was there an attitude about paper in the talisman not that i can recall yeah, I can't remember. I can't remember one way or the other if there was mention of paper. But maybe that's his thing. He's like trying to, you know, plot out a fantasy world in his head. You know, a more formalized fantasy world. And he's like, I just can't see it. Mm-hmm. They could have that. They can have that. Uh, you know, Hey Jude is around. Mm-hmm. But paper? Yeah. Not on my watch. <laughs> uh, but but so the reason, you know, that we kind of walk through that just now is that uh, the beginning of this book, right, it begins with this argument, this kind of summary of what's going on, and then immediately goes into... A maneuver to depower uh, Roland, mm-hmm. right? Yep, and not depower in the sense of like uh, what happens to him is inherently depowering or whatever. But in I think in the the narratological imagination, in the Kingian imagination, right? What happens to Roland, which is that he falls asleep uh, on the beach. These like weird little lobster things crawl out of the the ocean, and they're very cool. Actually, mm-hmm. I, I do want to kind of talk about the design of them. I think they're really cool monster um uh again very the mist you can really feel the mist as a as a like conceptual thing rolling through the rest of these books in the 80s mm-hmm. um it's pr- pretty pretty notable to me but uh so that it kind of just rolls out and it like you know roland's exhausted he's aged 10 years overnight if you remember from the end of the gunslinger um Falls asleep, his gun belts get wet, and his shells get wet, which is like, immediately, that's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's going to ruin these hand-packed shells that he has, the the 30 or 40 that he has remaining. And then this lobster thing rolls up and bites, uh, what, the first two fingers on his right hand off? Yep. Um, and so he's got a thumb and then the, the bottom two fingers. Uh, and then uh, bites off bi- a, a chunk of his big toe, which really seems to not matter all that much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, it, it, that seems to be less of a problem. And so immediately, you know, King begins this novel by having 
Roland lose half of his weapons, essentially, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Through this kind of, you know, uh, broadly disabling, and that's in a big quotation marks, but uh, maneuver. Um, uh, and that immediately has all these kind of consequences going through the novel that, that Roland needs help. I, I don't, why do you think he does this? Like, I, this has always been a thing for me where it's like, why did this begin with this kind of active depowering of Roland? And I have like some, some ideas, but from, from the mechanical perspective of the novel, of like the procession of the novel, that, that's what's occurring. Mm-hmm. He is, he is taking the superhero and making him less of a superhero. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I'm, I'm curious about what you thought and how you took it. Well, the kind of big, not I guess one of the big takeaways of the gunslinger uh, is that Roland is self-interested and not exactly like self-interested in the typical sense, but like Roland has this quest for the tower, uh, you know, this like big ultimate MacGuffin for his narrative. Like he needs to get to the tower. Who knows what's going to happen when he gets there or why he needs to get there. Uh, and he is so set on that that he will discard anyone who hinders his quest in any way. Um, or he, you know, has no problem uh, sort of punching through obstacles. And so this is why in that first book we get, you know, him massacring an entire town and, uh, you know, just single-handedly, um, really with both hands. It's from this point onward that he's doing things single-handedly. But uh, so we have that. And then the the more sort of like, I think, central uh, issue is Jake in that novel. Jake being this young boy who's lost and and it Jake demonstrates uh that after we see this massacre until Jake demonstrates that Roland is not like he is a killing machine uh but he is not uh only that, right? He he has other capacities. Uh he just doesn't really emphasize them and he lives a life where he doesn't really have to employ them. So Jake is this young scared kid that he takes uh on and cares for uh, shows his capacity for engaging with other people. And then, of course, uh, the man in black uh, maneuvers him into this situation where he has to choose between continuing to follow the man in black, which is to follow the quest for the tower or rescue Jake. And he chooses to follow the man in black, right? Jake falls into the abyss beneath the mountain and is gone. Um, and that is clearly in this book, uh, Roland thinks of it a couple of times, right. And is clearly reflecting on it. Like he knows that he made a choice there and he like sacrificed Jake to follow the man in black. And he understands the whole thing as having been basically the man in black, uh, organizing that choice in order to like humiliate him. So we have like this characterization of Roland. And then, uh, as you say, like he immediately gets depowered and also kind of the, the whole genre of the novel changes. One of the things that came out, uh, I think in the listserv, I remember like people talking about, uh, was this way of reading the Dark Tower series that was explicitly modeled on some person's theory about the alien films. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, you know what? I was prepared for you to say a lot of stuff, uh-huh. but that wasn't, that was not it. So this might, that was not even remotely one of the things I thought you were going to say. I think this might actually be like a cinema studies argument that gets like, uh, telephoned out into sort of like, you know, uh, vernacular and like fandom spaces and sort of watered down. Uh, I, so there there may in fact be some sort of article about this. I have this vague memory of that being the case. Um, but there's this line that you'll hear sometimes 
where like the uh, the original four Alien films, so Alien, Aliens, Alien Three, and then Alien Resurrection, uh, can be uh, comprehended as a system. You can you can feel here like the fan impulse to to look at these four very very different movies and be like, how are these all in the same franchise? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the ways that I've seen uh, fans kind of like process this in online discussions is by looking at those movies and being like, well, what you need to understand is that each one is a different genre, right? The first movie is a horror movie. The second movie is an action movie. The third movie is a thriller. And the fourth movie is a fantasy. Um, And so, okay. so this is a thing that shows up in the listservs. And I remember them talking about this is like, oh yeah, like drawing of like the, the dark tower changes kind of genres or sort of generic inflections with each book. Uh, and so the first one is like a much more straightforward kind of like weird fantasy story. Uh, and then the second one is more of a crime novel thriller kind of thing with fantasy elements. And then we can talk about, you know, the third and fourth books when we get there, because once we get to the fifth book, this, this theory really falls apart because five, six, seven are all kind of of a piece with one another um or at least that's how mm-hmm. i remember them so we'll we'll see oh i mean they're yeah they're all written back to back and maybe you know jumping back and forth and then they're all published um back to back which yeah. is like very astonishing for king yeah so you don't have as much uh sort of i guess drift between the individual volumes uh because that, that's one of the things that's happening here i think is that people are trying to come up with a system for apprehending what are the consequences of Stephen King just being a person situated in time and taking like 10 years between these books and in those 10 years uh you know growing as a person growing as a a uh, like an artist, right? Like developing new tools for his writerly toolkit and uh, different interests and becoming more fixated on certain ideas as opposed to others and wanting to sort of re-roll. Uh, and so here in Drawing of the Three with this issue of Roland being depowered, uh, we're, I think, clearly setting up uh, what I think is important for King for this character of Roland uh, is like Roland gets put into a position where he has to rely on other people in order to accomplish his goals, right? He cannot be self-sufficient anymore. So like the next kind of leg of his quest is uh, this story where he, you know, loses some of his capacities and has to assemble, as you said, a, a motley crew of uh, helpers for, and by motley crew, we mean two people <laughs> uh, who immediately right. become a married couple. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, yes, (laughs) like they do, but, uh, like his, his little, his little friends who are going to be his helpers on, on the, the rest of this journey. Um, and what's really kind of fascinating is that the characters understand this too. Like the, the, uh, not that they're like here to help Roland, who is like a hard man who is like being taught a lesson, but more like the the speed with which like Eddie is just like well I guess I got pulled into a fantasy world and I'm helping this cowboy on his quest the way he acclimates himself to that is just really really amusing to me yeah oh, oh like everyone has to be cool with it immediately mm-hmm. and uh, I don't quite know like it's not of a piece with any of the other fantasy works right like. In in the eyes of the dragon, everyone is born in the fantasy world, so it like doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. But in the talisman, there's like hundreds of pages dedicated to to uh, whatever Jack. What's his name? Well, I'm traveling Jack. Yeah, Jack. 
Uh, I thought you were thinking of Richard, who's the one who's like, this can't be happening, this can't be happening, et cetera, et cetera. Right, yeah, yeah. but uh, both of those things, right? Because Jack in the beginning is like, what's going on? You know, we get like a full hundred pages of that, Mm -hmm. of him like trying to figure out this relationship between the territories. He he goes on the quest pretty easily, but this bouncing back and forth and figuring it all out and like, what is money and all of that? Um, You know, that takes a long time. And then again, and then we get Richard, right, doing the same thing in the middle of the novel. Mm -hmm. um, And that kind of drives the plot. So, like, uh, historically, King is, like, very into, like, oh, wow, it's a different place. And we get a little bit of that here with Roland, you know, going into contemporary, then contemporary New York. But, uh, you know, and and all the different things that he can't understand there that's, like, you know, funny or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, for Eddie and uh, Odetta and Detta, it's like, all right, we're on a fantasy evil beach. Yep. Here we go. Here we go. (laughs) This is also a a big moment, too, of uh, (laughs) the... We've talked about the maps of the Dark Tower, right? Mm -hmm. Like... That they don't make any sense mm-hmm. because Stephen King, like basically all of these novels take place place in like a big swirpy, uh, you know, swir- swirping, swirling, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, some sort of uh, swirp. Um, the uh, uh, you know, like the recycling symbol, right? Like yeah. it, these novels are taking them south and then west, but and then you end up finding out that like. That that can't be in the direction that they're going, and so Roland, across his life at this point, has made like a big weird circular motion for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, it it just is incoherent, you know, as far as like a space is concerned. And I always find that very funny when we get here. But uh, yeah, so Roland loses his hand uh, or loses fingers on his hand, um, having trouble with his guns. Obviously, his guns have been wetted and all that kind of stuff. And then he finds a big weird door. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the least. Because the rest of these novels, you know, not to preview too much, but they get pretty science fiction-y, mm-hmm. you know. And there's there's magic, but we do get a sense that magic is, in most instances, either, you know, sufficiently advanced technology, or it is like a force that has been captured by machinery. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there might be magic, but it has been tamed by some sort of precursor people, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's not the case with these doors. Mm-hmm. They're just magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, you know, I notable hater of fantasy. What are you thinking about these doors? I think these doors are really cool. Wow. I mean, I am a notable hater of fantasy, but the thing that I feel about this particular, I mean, you know, in general, uh, Dark Tower, not so hot on it. Uh, not so hot on the first one, not really hot on this one. Uh, the next one, The Wastelands, I really enjoyed. Like, that's that's what I think of as, you know, the good Dark Tower novel. So I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to us having that conversation when we get there. Because it's just a science fiction novel? Maybe. <laughs> it is explicitly and expressly a science fiction novel. Um, with, a, with a hefty helping of, like, mid-1980s children's, uh, like, fantasies yeah. chucked in. Yeah. Like, it's the Dark Crystal. Yeah. Uh, but, uh... The the thing that I think is really cool about this book and how I put this in our show doc is I said that this book is like a neat idea in search of a plot. Uh, right. Because there is something. Um, well, I think this book does does so much to like buy the Dark Tower its own space as like a distinct thing from other series or other kinds of like fantasy or science fiction. 
um, because there's something that feels very iconic to me about uh, this this sort of, you know, scene of like a, a haggard old gunslinger, like stumbling to the beach, uh, like falling asleep, waking up as he's being attacked by these horrifically like monstrous uh, lobsters that are called the lobstrosities. Um, and, uh, that people would, uh, give us no end to an amount of shit, uh, if we did not mention, like, the, the wonderfully Kingian way that these things get characterized as, like, speaking. They have little clicks that they make, uh, and it's described by the narratorial voice as, like, sounding like they're all just asking each other questions, but the questions are things like, da chuck da chum did a chick like uh the just these like uh almost like bird like kind of calls of little clicks um mm-hmm. and it's so weird and like you know taking the like i can picture a lobster and it's like okay what if a lobster but real fucked up uh and like <laughs> okay great yes, easy right and now it's talking right you, you- gray gray <laughs> not 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 red yes. gray you know we got we got to get in there yeah well i mean lobsters lobsters aren't red until they're cooked cameron um but uh no i think that's false in, in my <laughs> mind a lobster is just uh uh you know like the lego lobster uh-huh. <laughs> that fits in like a little lego guy's hand that's in my mind that's the ultimate i guess that's also the muppet lobster yes <laughs> Uh, but then anyway, right? Okay, like, I accept it. Right. So the, the, this this cowboy like having a nightmare confrontation with evil talking <laughs> lobster things, and then he- well, in the way they're written too, as they they pause oh, yeah. when the when the sea comes in, and that actually falls out of the novel, unfortunately. Like it only matters kind of at the beginning uh, to give him kind of a respite from being attacked by them. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, they're like they're running and they're fast and they're like bitey and and whatever, right? They're they're creatures from the mist. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they have that kind of um inhuman uh, unlike any other physical creature kind of speed and dexterity and sharpness you know they can just tear things apart Mm -hmm. um you know i stephen king should watch a jackass film to see what happens when a crab actually attacks you or or any sort of uh, crustacean uh because it's not they don't rip you apart they just pinch you real hard Mm -hmm. uh and it hurts and everyone hates it (laughs) but uh the um but but yeah, when the when the surf comes in, right? They like raise their arms up above their head, mm-hmm. uh, or like ra- like kind of in front of them, like a boxer, and they like sway and they don't say anything. Mm-hmm. There's something just really like you know iconic and weird about them in that way that they have like the set of rules and all these questions they're asking themselves. Um, and again, they become plot critical yes. <laughs> in a lot of ways. So, so all of that happens, right? We get like it's such a good distinctive scene. This this moonlight uh, attack by these weird lobsters, and then uh, Roland, as he's like fleeing, runs into just this freestanding door on the beach with one word written on it, or two words rather, but like one phrase: "The prisoner," which was the name of the first tarot card that the man in black drew for him at the end of the Gunslinger. Uh, And there's something to me about, you know, between like the cowboy, the lobsters on the beach, and then like the freestanding door on the beach, like that is like that is definitive to me of like what the Dark Tower is of Mm -hmm. uh, kind of. And then we open the door and it turns out it's a portal into uh, our world, quote unquote, which is like 1980s New York. And like Roland can see through the eyes of the prisoner who turns out to be a a heroin addict named Eddie Dean. And we'll talk about him in a bit. Um, But uh, 
you know, just this idea of a weird world where like a bunch of generic elements are kind of being layered on top of one another in ways that don't uh, make like traditional sense, right? Like there, there is a new type of world being projected, this kind of like post-apocalyptic, like world has moved on low fantasy kind of thing uh, with like these doors that connect you to good old 1980s US of A. Right. Uh, and as I said, like this, this is where uh, like this is the Dark Tower to me, like insofar as I do like the Dark Tower, like this kind of flavor of all of these elements together is what feels very unique and distinctive about the about the cycle to me. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's kind of interesting, I guess, that like it's just, it's just one mode here, you know, normally and especially for the rest of the books, it's going to bounce back and forth. Right. So, you know, in the Wolves of the Cala, the 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 kind of. Uh, down home peasantry versus like robot warriors, yes. you know, not to go, you know, like that to me, you know, really is, or, you know, the, the stuff that happens in wizard and glass around like war machines. Right. And then like cowboys on horseback, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's, you know, this kind of wax and wane of high tech dead world and uh, whatever the fuck the other stuff, fantasy stuff, right. Uh, infused fantasy. And it's really only the infused, the infused fantasy stuff here. Uh, this is, I guess, closer to like a horror fantasy novel. Um, this is highly involved in like, a, like, as you were saying, I, I don't know if I agree with exactly the alien film part of it, mm-hmm. but this certainly is like a different kind of book because we move through three different, you know, cause he, what happens is that Roland's, uh, you know, he he gets his fingers bitten off, and he gets. They keep saying poisoned, but also he's just like got a, an infection from having his hand bitten. Right. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, I'm sure those things are not hyper clean. Um, you know, uh, ocean bugs, and so uh, he, you know, he's got a blood infection. You know, kind of like, uh, or I think it's turning into a blood infection. Um, kind of creeping through his body. And so he, he goes into the door partially because you, you got to go into the door to figure out what you can do about yourself. And it creates this whole like series of rules in which the doorway is a gateway into someone's mind and, or like, like the physical space of the inside of their like phenomenal experience. Mm-hmm. We best not to think too hard about it. I think. Oh, and, you can think about uh, it you, really hard in the way that Eddie does when he sees it, which is like, oh, this is like watching Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. <laughs> yeah, it's like a steady cam. What's going on? Yes, he, he starts, you know, oh, it's interesting that like it's all uh, metaphorized, right? Uh-huh. Like it's always like another thing. Uh, it's never the thing itself. But uh, so anyway, you, you like kind of like it's like you're piloting a mech kind of, but you're in like a heroin addict's brain. And uh Roland is in there and there are all these additional rules where he can like grab things and then take them back with him when he leaves the doorway and he can eventually pull people through, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he can also go all the way through himself. Mm-hmm. You know, he can he can make his way in. And so basically we get three different little short stories. Um, you know, th- this I don't believe was written as a fix up. Right. Mm-hmm. This was not short stories first, but it is written as a fix yeah. up um, where each discrete section is its own little genre story for eddie the eddie section uh eddie dean it's a crime story just a straight up like drugs and crime story a little bit of an exploitation story for uh odetta and detta it's also an exploitation story you know it's a faces of eve style thing that is also compiled into or compounded into 
a um civil rights story yeah uh we'll have i we'll talk about that in just a minute i you know probably the least successful of all three of these and then the third one is like a revenge story but it's roland getting revenge on like a a guy right uh, you know like a guy he hates right um and uh of the pusher the guy who uh, we learn killed um jake who showed up in the previous book and who Roland killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's someone who was like a CPA by day and then a serial killer. Yeah. You know, uh, who pushes people in front of stuff and has touched the lives of both Jake and Detta, but not, or, or Odetta, uh, but not Eddie in any kind of way. And which I, is thought, very funny. I thought that was weird because, uh, not to jump too far ahead, uh, but like the the place for him to have affected Eddie's life is right there. Did you did you see it? No, I didn't. So the uh, Jack Mort uh, Mort M O R T because death. Right. You get it, you get it, folks. Mm-hmm. Um, He's the death card <laughs> that's that's drawn by. The man in black in the previous novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's he's a, a serial killer. He's like a, a he's another go at Patrick Hockstetter from It. Where yeah. he's someone who is like completely like has like he has interiority, but he has no interior feeling, right? Every mm-hmm. everything is like something to be manipulated or killed or dispensed with at his whim. Um, and so he kills people by kind of like pushing them in front of like traffic, right? Uh, or like uh, in in one case pushes a brick off of a building and and hits uh Odetta in the head when she's a little girl. Again, we'll talk about that, but um, uh. He like that's what he does. He is called the pusher. Uh, this is obviously or not obviously, I guess, because it doesn't shake out this way. Um, but the thematics of addiction in this novel are really getting amped up, really being pushed to the fore, particularly with Eddie, who is, as I said, a heroin addict. Um, and the reason uh, well, the reason he is a heroin addict is because his older brother, who basically like took care of him and raised him, becomes a heroin addict. And he sort of like always followed his brother. Right. There's the sense that they were in a really like kind of um, they, they did not grow up in a in a great way. They like grew up, you know, in the projects in New York City. Uh, and so they're kind of like code. They're they're codependent in a way that's really unhealthy. And it seems like his mm-hmm. older brother, Henry, is he's the one who steers the ship, but he's not actually as good at making decisions as he thinks he is. And Eddie has kind of this like problem where he idolizes Henry a little bit too much. Uh, mm-hmm. But the reason I, and uh, Henry is a, you know, a victim of the Vietnam War. Yes. Like very explicitly. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, he comes back addicted to heroin and uh, also like with a structure in a way of imagining himself that is grossly incommensurate with the world around mm-hmm. him. And the reason uh, he and like the reason Henry and Eddie are in this like weird codependent thing is because they had a sister between them. Uh whose name I don't remember, but she died when they were kids. She got uh, uh, run over by a car. And I remember reading this the first time and thinking like, oh, okay, and we're going to find out that Jack Mort pushed Eddie's sister into the street or something. Uh, because that's that makes that basically right. makes their mom, because they had a single mom, it makes her like extremely neurotic about their safety. And so she's always telling Henry to watch after Eddie, and she's always telling Eddie to like listen to Henry to like make them like, you know, protect each other, basically. Um and it's there, right? It's begging for it, but that that never locks together. And I don't know if that's because it was something Steve was planning and he forgot, or it just if there's some reason that he didn't want Eddie to be directly impacted by Jack Mort. Uh, I just think it would 
it's a small thing and it's a quibble. It doesn't really matter, but it would have kind of like unified the book in a way that feels a little lacking now. I've got to, I've got to blow your mind on a thing okay. real quick. Um, <laughs> uh, so her, her name is Selena in this book, but weirdly enough, there's a continuity error and her name is Gloria in the wastelands, which is fascinating. Huh. Uh, you know, it's a little thing, but that's not the mind blowing thing. Okay. The mind blowing thing is that if you'll remember the dark tower has been adapted into comic books. Uh huh. Um, and I don't know if they finished them, but you know, there's a bunch of them and they fill out a bunch of backstory, blah, 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 blah. That uh, it's things I don't care about. And I'm, I don't believe we're going to read these comic books. Um, but, uh, in the comic book continuity, she dies because Eddie throws her teddy bear into the street. Oh my God. Her doll, not a teddy bear. And then she's hit by a car. I don't know why you would need to like judge the eddie dean guilt narrative up yeah. you know he sees his own bro- he sees his brother decapitated right and then you know his head thrown at him as a as a kind of uh threat and psychological wounding right mm-hmm. uh you know, the psychic slash that d- demolishes i don't think you need to heighten that in any kind of way right like it seems unnecessarily cr- cruel but uh but yeah you're right 100 percent. like that would uh very cleanly maybe we're maybe meant to make that inference right um mm-hmm. or or we could make that inference uh also you know this is is 87 the end of the cocaine years i i i don't know i wasn't born until 88 Oh, I mean for Stephen King. <laughs> isn't it, isn't it uh, isn't eighty seven like the other end of the of the thing for that? Yeah, no. Um, uh, uh, eighty seven is uh, you you gestured at this at the beginning too. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a year where he publishes like four or five things technically, and one of them is the Tommy Knockers, which is straight up like this is a novel about kicking drugs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll we'll have more to say about that. I think probably in the Tommy Knockers episode. That's the episode where we'll, where we will really kind of dig into it because I I think all of these eighty seven novels are pretty meta reflexive, right? Like mm-hmm. this is a book that's about the the thing that he can't get rid of in some ways. You know, the Dark Tower is haunting him, and he's got to kind of keep going back there. Uh, the Tommy Knockers is about his relationship with drugs and drug abuse and alcohol in particular, uh, and Misery is about his relationship with his fans. Mm-hmm. Um, and what fans want from him, right? So there's going to be a lot of, I think, really interesting meta reflection going on for this little cluster of novels. But anyway, so Eddie Dean's story is uh, maybe the one we can we can dig into first here uh, for mm-hmm. just a minute. Uh, Eddie is uh, he he's on the hook with a guy named Balthazar. Balazar. Balthazar. Balazar. Sorry, I got Balthazar mm-hmm. on the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a guy named uh, Balazar. To go to the Bahamas and pick up a bunch of cocaine. Mm-hmm. And it's fucked up from the beginning. Uh, like you mean you mean like the in terms of like the crime novel, like the plot is it like the the little uh the score is is fucked up like it's not going to go well or you mean like yeah, this is an yeah, object they, is fucked up no no like i mean i i think it's like a fairly basic you yeah. know uh, uh plot going on here right i mean the, the general gist is like uh uh eddie eddie's going to the bahamas he's going to pick up the drugs he is uh he can't hold it together you know on the flight home 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a heroin addict. That's part of it. Uh, you know, he's 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 really wanting to use, but also his behavior is a little erratic, which is not helped by the fact that Roland is like taking over his body <laughs> right. and like eating sandwiches and whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so anyway, gets the flight. Um, you know, gets customs called on him, and uh, uh, Roland takes the drugs back into uh, the Dark Tower universe. Uh, through this like weird mechanism and uh, then Eddie like gets his gets through customs but ultimately then the crime boss is like how'd you get through customs so quickly you know right like what if you didn't make it through immediately you were detained for two hours you must have flipped and so then they're gonna kill him and they kill his brother too I mean that's the the crime novel thing about it and then the exploitation kind of bit of it is uh, you know getting down and deep into the reality of heroin addiction in the 80s man mm-hmm. um, and you know drug culture blah 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 um, uh, what's it like to live in New York as a white guy mm-hmm. you know that kind of thing poor well, white people are everywhere man we revisit the perennial topic of the Italian mafia uh, and Janelli yeah yeah, I want Janelle to exist in all worlds. <laughs> you know, the the tower is a spoke, and there's Janelle and all the infinite <laughs> parts of the blades of grass. Right? Yeah. Um. Uh. We always get a Janelle, and he's always ready to do some sort of secret violence mission for anyone and everyone. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I think that's really great. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. I guess. Uh, is there anything else to say about Eddie's story? Like, I mean, in in big picture. Uh, so how this works, if you haven't read it, is like Eddie, you know, slowly becomes aware that there is like another presence in his mind that is like, and, it, and Roland can like talk to him. Uh, and of course he thinks he's going crazy. Uh, the other thing that happens is that like Roland can be hanging out in Eddie's mind, like just, you know, sort of a presence, or he can kind of like step forward and sort of take control of the body and do the, you know, the mech thing. Uh, and when this happens, whoever he is controlling, uh, their eyes change color. So they change to specifically the color of Roland's eyes, which are like, you know, icy blue or whatever. Um, and this is important for this story and less important for the other two, uh, just because Roland doesn't spend as much time in in like the real world or our world or however we want to think about that. He doesn't spend as much time in New York in the other stories as he does here. Um, and he doesn't do as much sort of like stepping back and forth, actually, now that I think about it. But yeah, so the, the, uh, Balazar, um, who actually I think does end up becoming important in the later books too, doesn't he? Or like something, Uh, something here, something about this whole mob thing, like gets tied into stuff that's happening in later books, which I actually think is kind of interesting. Yeah, I don't know if it's specifically Balazar, but there is another identical organization. Uh, Maybe it is, though. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, so they like either think Eddie has flipped. They they don't understand also because like if he if he tried to ditch the drugs, he would have done it in the, the toilet. Um, on the plane, but they've drained the toilet and there's nothing there. And so uh, Balazar is extremely suspicious of Eddie uh, and he wants to know what's going on. Uh, Henry's brother has been kidnapped by them as kind of a, uh, you know, a bargaining chip. But it also uh, happens that he ODs while he is in custody. Um right. So that like screw like that screws the whole pooch, right? Uh, and then there's this big uh, uh, shootout between all of these mob goons and Roland and or slash Roland in Eddie's body while Eddie is mostly naked. <laughs> yeah, 
it's uh, it's rad. Also, the uh, hidden compartment thing that's going on here. Oh, in in Balazar's bathroom. So like the, the, they they make Eddie strip down and he like goes into the bathroom because he's like, I can get you your drugs back because all he has to do is have uh, Roland bring the cocaine back over from, you know, the uh, hell murder beach. Mm-hmm. And uh, but he doesn't he doesn't want to show them him like a purifying <laughs> the cocaine into his hands in that way. Right. Uh, so so he's going to go into like the, the little bathroom, but they make him strip down first because they want to make sure that there's no funny business. Uh, and then could continue with this, uh, uh, the compartment. Yeah. So, uh, so there's like a little hidden compartment, right? That he has to, that Balazar wants to make sure that like, you know, someone hasn't planted it there or whatever. And so they open the compartment. And so Roland is dying of an infection back on the beach. And so, you know, very convenient thing that he finds is Keflex, which is just like penicillin, mm-hmm. right? Um, which presumably is here to treat like, uh, venereal disease, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is is the idea? Uh, STIs. Um, and so it's like his private stash of thing to to uh treat STIs. And then there is um, I for I forget the third thing, but there's also child pornography here. Yeah. So it's like Balazar's bad. Mm-hmm. It's the eighties. Balazar's the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember the third thing. I think it's maybe a little gun or something. Maybe. Like a little uh, backup gun? I don't know. No, it's not a gun. I don't know. It doesn't matter, yeah. obviously. I mean, the, um, the important things are the penicillin and then the, the uh, child pornography, yeah. Right. There's this real, like, uh, you know, one is plot important and the other one's this real, like, kick the dog, right? Like, mm-hmm. Balazar's, he's not just mob bad, he's bad bad, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um there, there's something that for the bonus of that's going to be coming out with this. Um, uh, we're going to be talking about it chapters one and two, which are the most recent films of it. And I'm going to talk in that episode a little bit about an interview with Stephen King. That's on the bonus features for maybe the first it chapter film uh, mm-hmm. in on the physical release. And in that King really is doing some career reflection and he is really seeing, he talks about his career, um, uh, especially this kind of 80s stuff, what's happening with it in particular, he talks about it in terms of like, he wants to depict a world in which the good guys win and the bad guys lose. And like, mm-hmm. that's important to him. And there's something fascinating to me about his kind of reconfiguration of his career, you know, in the 20 teens to think mm-hmm. through those things. Cause that's not something I really associate with King, like uh, it, up to the point where we've read, right? Like the evil might undo itself. And then the last instance, far away in the future, the white might win out, right? I do think mm-hmm. that's right. I do think he has this kind of Tolkien-y kind of imagination of that. Um, but pragmatically, within the plot of the thing, I don't know if that's always true so far. But th- but to me, with that kind of rattling around in my head, having just seen that, I really thought about the scene in those terms, right? Of like, we have to establish that like Balazar is bad, but he's not bad because he's a businessman. He's not bad because he's like a Janelli, right? Mm-hmm. Who's just like... Look, I've got my friends and I've got my enemies and I'll do whatever I have to do to make sure my friends win, right? He's mm-hmm. not that kind of bad cuz that's Roland, right? Like yes. Roland would do that. Mm-hmm. Roland would kill literally anyone on the planet uh up until this point if it meant that he could get to the tower. Um and the story of uh, the story of the Dark Tower broadly is kind of leaning into this more recent king thing of like the white wins out and the truth and the good and learning that that's important matters, right? Which is not the Roland of of the gunslinger, certainly. And maybe it's not the Roland here. But anyway, so I think it's a really interesting moment. And then uh, Roland comes through 
and I love the scene that is written from uh, Balazar's perspective. Uh, you know, this book really has a kind of uh, it, it's showing some transformation, I think, in King of really pulling from that uh, those earlier books that we like so much. And maybe some of these things have fallen out in the mid 80s so far of like, hey, we're just going to get like a few pages from someone else's perspective, like someone unrelated to the plot entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the way that we got in Cujo or the way that we got in Salem's Lot. Um, uh, and so we get some kind of like POV-ish stuff or at least some like tight scenes between Bal- Balazar and his first lieutenant and all that kind of stuff uh, here. But, you know, they describe the door opening and, and naked Eddie Dean rolling out mm-hmm. uh, alongside Roland, like this this fucking cowboy mm-hmm. <laughs> just coming out guns blazing. It's oh, and this is after, like, it's super cool. This is after. So they send a guy in oh, like one yeah. of his big. Uh, what's his name? Jack Andalini. Yeah. Um, Jack Andalini, who, like a like a like a great king bad guy. Right. Because right? he's like so he's like this big hulking ugly brute. And of course, because this is king, uh, how he is constantly described as that if you looked at him, you would think he was stupid, right? Right. He, he looks like he's got like this protruding brow and all this stuff. Like he looks like just the stupidest guy you could ever imagine. But he's like got the sharp, fine-tuned mind of like an expert killer, right? He is actually extremely uh, perceptive and uh, dangerous. And he u- and he knows that people think he's stupid and he uses that to his advantage. Mm-hmm. So he gets sent into the bathroom with Eddie the first time. And Eddie's like, fuck, like, what are we going to do? And Roland is like, don't worry, like, we can work with this. They end up pulling Jack through into onto Hell Murder Beach and uh, they feed him to the lobstrosities. So, you know, this is the, the lobstrosities always there in the background, always doing what needs to be done. Yeah, um, they are the most effective force in the novel. <laughs> I'm not I'm not exaggerating. They do more plot-wise than anyone else. And he's like screaming and like firing his gun. And what's great is that before Roland and Eddie come out after all of this, like when we get that Balazar scene, he's sort of sitting there and he thinks he hears like distant gunshots, but he thinks it also just might be a firecracker cuz or you know, it could also be a gun cuz he's like, you know, it's 1980s New York City. Whatever it is, it sounds really distant, but he like he hears something fire and he hears like what he thinks are screams and you know for me what is most amusing is that he can somehow hear through uh you know the worlds because that door has been left open or whatever so he is in fact hearing jack being fed to the lobstrosities but it's not until the door busts open and eddie and this cowboy come out that he realizes exactly how weird shit has gotten yeah and then there's like a big fight big gun Mm -hmm. battle uh and uh they throw henry henry dean's head Mm-hmm. You know, in into the like little room, and uh, then they decide to go go to Fantasy Hell Beach, and yeah. and there you go, and that's it, right? Like, and like Eddie accepts that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he is a heroin addict. That this does present a problem for him, and uh, that kind of drives you know some of the plot going forward, but less than you would think. It's basically like, all right, we've got we've got party member number one, party mm-hmm. time for party member number two. Mm-hmm. Um, who is uh, uh, Odetta Holmes and Detta Walker. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Let me say this before we say anything else. Mm-hmm. She's she's what? The Lady of Shadows? Yes. It's her, like, that's what's written on her door. That was the card that she was presented as a full decade beforehand in The Gunslinger. Um, in the audiobook... For the drawing of the three, the original audiobook released at the time. So it's like a book on tape mm-hmm. from 87. Stephen King 
reads this book. Mm-hmm. And I have I have looked hard. I spent a couple hours looking to see if I could find anyone who had uploaded that audio to the internet because I am so deeply, perversely interested in hearing Stephen King do these voices. So Odetta is a black woman. Right. Um, And she also has uh, what we would today call dissociative identity disorder, what in... uh, sort of the time period that I first read this, we would have called multiple personality disorder and what the book itself consistently refers to as schizophrenia. Um, But the the, it's very like faces of Eve, right? It's like this kind of pop culture idea of like someone having two identities. Yeah. So uh, Odetta is kind of like the, she is like one of one, she's the legal person, right? Like she is uh, the, the sort of baseline like body, but she has this other personality called Detta who is so Odetta is a black woman, as I said, but she's also a particular like social class of African-American woman in like 1960s New York. Like the civil rights movement is sort of happening in the background of her story. Uh, Her family is from the South, uh, but has moved to New York City because her father uh, happened to uh, file some patents on some dental procedures that have made them wealthy. So they're part of kind of like this, uh, like kind of the great migration sort of, or like post great migration as, uh, uh, lots and lots of African Americans are moving out of the South up into like the West, the Midwest and, and the Northeast. Uh, and they're kind of like nouveau riche or, or something like that. And she is very much a lady of society, uh, very proper. She is not, uh, intimately uh, invested in the civil rights movement at first, but is like kind of being pulled in that direction as she sees like media coverage and uh, uh, things of that nature. And she's uh, she has just come back from Alabama, I think, uh, as part of a demonstration. Um, then there's Detta, who is her other personality, who is quite literally like it, this. This is said eventually in the text, like a cartoon of a black woman, like a racist caricature who is constantly screaming in like the most uh, sort of broad and offensive uh, like dialect, right? Black dialect writing uh, about like honkies and all the violence she's going to do to them. And she's like very vulgar and lewd and sexually aggressive and, Golly, um, I haven't even <laughs> talked about the fact that she uses a wheelchair yet. Yeah, uh, she when so when she was a child, she was hit on the head with a brick. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a brick was dropped on her, and that's what uh, we find out later. That was Jack Mort who did that, um, and that that splits her personality again. This is like kind of a cartoon or like mass media, you know, uh, representation of these things, right? Like this doesn't really have any relationship to any real world mental illness or condition or anything like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, like it's, uh, it's, it's exploit much like Eddie Dean's story in one way. This is a different kind of exploitation novel, right? It's Mm -hmm. it's the, uh, uh, what if your mind was not your own panic novel? And it's also the civil rights, legitimate exploration. You know what I mean? That's not the exploitation part is, I guess Mm -hmm. what I'm saying. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that happens. And then later in her life, she is again, uh, attacked by Jack Mort unrelated, does not know it's her. 
just happens to be the second run where he pushes her in front of a train and a train runs over her um, legs right above the knee and severs them. Mm-hmm. And then we get this really great, actually, like little short story thing going on with the EMT or no, the medical intern who like saves her life. Mm hmm. That's like a cool little, I, that should not be in this book. You could very easily cut it and it would do nothing to it. But I, I actually do like uh, that little section about him and like what he's doing and, and why he decides to be medical intern. It's a weird little short story just kind of fitting in here. But yeah, um, but yeah so and so she's a wheelchair user. Um, and so that's like part of the whole deal. And it's kind of like part of her class position too, right? You, you get a good sense that, that she, because she, um, her father created like a dental company, a dental supplies company, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, that made them like hyper wealthy. And so um, it's the combination of her wealth and her kind of social status that allows her to be a black woman who is also a wheelchair user and not really experience much friction as far as that's concerned in this fictional universe in which Stephen King is created. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, uh, so what I said to you before recording when we were reading this uh mm-hmm. the thing that i picked up on this time that i didn't really pick up on whenever i this is my this is my first time rereading this since whenever mm. uh the thing that i was really able to pick up on this time was i think how pleased king seems to be with himself at having crafted this character how clever he thinks some of the stuff that's going on here is he clearly thinks he is like doing something or saying something by uh, configuring this character in the way that he has. Uh, and you can feel that when she's introduced in like her first first couple pages where she's talking to her chauffeur, who's a white guy, by the way. Um, he, he's not just white. He's yeah, Irish, Irish. Right. Right. Uh, There's a very particular thing going on with that. Too. Yes. Right. Uh, but this is what, this is part of what I, uh, you know, want to get at, which is like, she is introduced, described and talked about, and you would not necessarily know she is black. Uh, you might guess because Odetta, uh, is the name of a famous, uh, uh, black folk singer from the sixties. Um, hey, yo, Michael jumping in the edit here to follow up on the claim that I just made about, uh, Odetta, uh, the folk singer and civil rights activist. Uh, I had just looked that up to make sure I was absolutely right. And one of the things that I discovered is that although Odetta the singer, uh, was primarily known by her mononym, uh, that is to say she was known as just Odetta, uh, her legal name was in fact Odetta Holmes. So Steve just took that name and gave it to this character. Um, so that's, uh, something to, to think about, uh, uh, an additional little layer in terms of, uh, all the other stuff that's going on here. And, uh, I just wanted to, uh, make that clear since we didn't have it on deck in the episode. But uh, when it is finally explicitly confirmed in text, like a few pages later, it has uh, sort of the it has the tone, right? It comes at like the end of a paragraph. It's got like the feeling of a mic drop where it's like, bet you didn't think about this, did you? And then you get a few more pages and it does the same thing with her wheelchair because it's like and no one like through like ever since she was however old like she had had no legs below or above the knees or something I, you know like it, it's presented again as kind of this both of these things right her blackness mm-hmm. and uh her disability are presented as kind of these like oh fuck reader it's getting real isn't it kind of rhetorical moves yeah it feels a lot like that castle rock thing that we read from king about it 
uh, mm. you know, where, where he was talking about, uh, you know, for the first hundred pages, I didn't know that Mike Hanlon was black. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, this feels like a more knowing version of that or, or a more explicit kind of run at it. And, I, you know, I, I, I guess I'm of like two minds about this character. Because on one hand, this is probably the most complicated character Stephen King has ever written. Mm-hmm. Like in the sense of like a human being with full psychology. And like a political position in the world. Yes. And like a class position, right? Like there's a depth to Odetta, Odetta Holmes in particular, that is just like not there in most of his characters. And I, I don't know what to do with that. I don't, I, I don't even say that to be like be like, hey, we need to think about this in a more... Uh, robust way it's just notable uh Mm -hmm. that you know he seems to put a lot of thought into it it does seem that he's taken on some of the feedback that he has received both in the popular press and in the kind of fan stuff like like castle rock about his writing of black characters Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he seems to have a more complicated thing, but then he runs straight straight into this like weird exploitation thing, right? Of uh, both like uh, uh, you know, whatever at the time, you know, big quotation marks, schizophrenia narratives and fears. Mm-hmm. Ad break. Ad break. Ad break. Hey, we're here in the middle of the episode somewhere to tell you about. Ways you can support the show. You can go to patreon.com slash ranged touch. The link is down in the description below. You can go there to support the show. Uh, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of stuff to make Just King Things go. And giving us as little as a dollar a month uh, really helps us out. But if you give us $5 a month, you can get access to our bonus episodes. We've got 25, 26 bonus episodes running around right now, which are on film adaptations, opera adaptations, different versions of Stephen King's stuff that we have checked out and talked through for roughly the same amount of length of time as uh, we do here in the main episode. So if you want to hear us talking more about Stephen King stuff and really kind of diving deep uh, in a really cool way, sometimes referring to original scripts and definitely talking about uh, things like uh, Castle Rock and stuff like that, uh, give us a shot. Check it out. It's really cool. This month's bonus episode is on It, chapters one and two. So the two most recent film adaptations of It, we are closing up our It talk. Uh, uh, Gosh, I watch a lot of commentary, and you would not believe the amount of information I have on the It films going forward. Uh, Michael, had you seen the It films until recently? Oh, yes, I had seen them both. But uh, a special preview for the bonus episodes. I read the original screenplay draft by, uh, I don't remember the guy's first name, but Palmer and Kerry Fukunaga was the other writer. So the before Muschietti took over uh, all the duties with with It Chapter One, there was a previous version of the that screenplay. And I read that. And there are some really interesting differences there that I'm going to dig into on the bonus episode. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about it. I think we got a lot of like deep background information as well as just like some there's some stuff to to check out here, uh, especially about how it rearticulates a lot of things that are going on in the novel. So that's what we are up to in that bonus episode. I promise you, you want to spend five dollars to go check that out. 
Um, and you can check out the bonus episodes of some of our other shows as well um, if you do that. So, uh, again, we only spread by word of mouth, and we only are supported by uh, Patreon. We don't do ads. We don't do anything else. I mean, we do our own ad here. Um, so uh, it, please tweet about the show. Please tell people you listen to it. Please let them know. Put it on Facebook. Put it in your newsletter. Uh, write the URL on a wall somewhere. Any of that is helpful for us. We do not, of course, condone uh, whatever illegal activities you might want to get up to, writing uh, our names on things. But, uh, you know, I can't control you. Mm-hmm. You're an adult, mm-hmm. probably. Uh, it's statistically, <laughs> based, on, <laughs> based on the stats that we receive, you're probably an adult. Uh, but, uh, yeah, anyway, tell people about the show, please. It helps us out a huge amount. And if you're listening to this on iTunes, please give us five stars. You know, we had someone go in there and I don't want, I don't want, I don't know who did it, but someone went on there and gave us a two star review. Damn. Michael. Damn. Someone went on there and gave us a two star review and it took our reviews from a 5.0 to a 4.9. And that hurt me in my heart. It got me. Yeah. Yeah. Makes it just makes me feel like I, I want to shrivel up and turn into a little baby while people call me a clown. Mm-hmm. Me too. Punch me right in my butt. So it speared me with a with a, a, a fence thing. <laughs> the right shard of longinus. Yeah. It got me. So, you know, tell people about the show. And go leave us five stars on Apple Podcasts (laughs) to get us back up to that 5.0. Please, it'd help us out a lot. Mm -hmm. Anyway, bonus episode is is on the It Movies. And if you leave a five-star review, I will read a uh, review that you leave. And this is from Malothar. Insightful. They spend so much time putting the show together. You have no excuse not to put the time in listening. That's right. You've got no excuse. True. Got another one here from uh, Ghostly Robots. Simply incredible. I had to leave a five-star review, not just for Steve, but for Cowboy Michael. The 5.5-hour It episode that would last you nearly a cross-country flight's length of time. And the flagrant Bob Dylan hate. If you love King, but you also miss having a cool literature professor, this podcast is great. Aw. Don't we all miss that? Mm -hmm. Having a cool literature professor. <laughs> I missed it Probably. so much I became one. Wow. Powerful. Uh, anyway, so uh, pop on over there and do that for us, and that will help us out. And then we're going to take you right back to the episode. Thanks so much. Goodbye. <laughs> and then this kind of like weird bifurcation. I mean, Odetta and Detta, Odetta Holmes and Detta Walker are not complicated in any kind of way, right? It's just two halves of one human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, Odetta is polite and nice and politically organized and someone who cares about other people and broadly believes that uh, the political goals of the civil rights movement need to be accomplished, but in a way that is fair to everyone. You know, there's there's a part where she's talking to Eddie later on the novel where she's like, I don't think we need to tear down white people to get rights for black people, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's a very, like, um, I don't know, it feels very kingy in there, right? Yeah. Well, uh, and just also, in a broad sense. Also, mm-hmm. she's, yeah, she's like a tiny bit of like a, what we might call a limousine liberal. Oh, she is. Right? Yeah. Right? That There's... explicitly gets brought up in yeah. this, uh, uh, in the, in the book. Right. Um, cause, and she doesn't want to be one. She's self-aware to know that she doesn't need to, or doesn't want to look like a hyper rich liberal, even though she is right. She mm-hmm. wants to 
be a little bit more on the ground. And she I mean, she is, right? She gets arrested in Oxford, and mm-hmm. you know she's really concerned about the rest of her friends, who are some of whom are still there. Um, so you know, I just notable. I, I don't think like we have to like. Uh, I I think people historically have put King on a pedestal for this kind of thing, and you don't have to. Mm-hmm. He just didn't do as bad a job as he historically has. I say that until we get to Detta Walker, who's just the other side of a human being, right? So she mm-hmm. is all of Odetta's uh, sexuality, right? Like mm-hmm. Odetta, not a lot of sexuality. All romance, capital R romance with Eddie Dean. No no carnality, no sexuality, because that's all shunted off into Detta. Her like racism, her selfishness, and her racism, I mean, in the sense of like she uh, uh, cartoonishly hates white people. Um, you know, that shunted off into Detta, um, her distrust of other human beings, her desire to nihilistically destroy the world and everything good in the world. Uh, Detta Walker is poor, mm-hmm. explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she lives a separate life. You know, there are these gaps in each of their memories. And uh, when she's Detta Walker, she lives like in an attic somewhere. Yeah. Um, and when she's Odetta home, she lives in a, a palatial estate. You know, she lives in a like a nice town home or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, and we get these like flashbacks. Detta Walker doesn't even have a like coherent phenomenological memory, right? It's just these scattered moments of violence and sexuality. So she like goes out and lures white dudes into having sex with her and then like slashes their face and shit. Right? Yeah. Um, and there's all this kind of like uh, sexual neurosis slash kink stuff going on. You know, I, uh, King doesn't have the language for it in the eighties or is not interested in having language for it, but you know, she's deeply there. There is a sexual relationship to her between her for her between like destroying nice things like this plate that comes up a couple times. That's like a, you know, um, like a gift plate, like a fine China kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, she's masturbating while she destroys it as a, as a child or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Detta Walker is constantly masturbating. Uh-huh. Uh, there, there's something going on with King here between it, the drawing of the three, um, the, the crudeness within which sexuality erupts into, uh, Stephen King's imaginary basically for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of the stuff's going on and a lot of the stuff in like the short stories and nightmares and dreamscapes, um, the uh, Four Past Midnight has a couple of these scenes in it. Yeah. You know, these very kind of... Uh, I don't even know if it's growing going for the gross out so much as it's like just crude, directly described sexual moments mm-hmm. um, that, that really leave a weird taste, I mm-hmm. think. You know, I, I, it's hard to know what to do with them other than just to like read them and, and move on with your life. But... But that's the kind of it, right? There's this kind of cru- there. I guess in a general sense, there's a crudeness to the way that uh, that these two women are one person, and they are, uh, you know, there's no Venn diagram, right? There, right? There's no wholeness to a person. I think that Stephen King is implicitly saying that within everyone, there's all this stuff, and separating it out into two different people leaves um, two kind of incomplete people, and so the work of this section of the novel, or at least part of this novel, is trying to bring those two women together. Um, although, unlike Eddie Dean, where we like bounce back and forth between like the beach and the other world, and the beach in the real world, quote unquote, or like New York, this is basically like we we go to 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 New York for a little while, uh, just long enough to take control of her body, and then we're back in the beach, and then we're never going back to New York for I, her. 
I thought that was really interesting because uh, in a way, right, the Eddie section does set up kind of an expectation for you. And I think it's really interesting that so much of Eddie's story is about working through Eddie's life kind of on the ground. But in order to solve Odetta's problems, we need to extricate her from her context as quickly as possible. Right. Because otherwise you're going to have to like write about the civil rights movement. Uh-huh. <laughs> Or this, like, you know, racialization, like, weird little, like, all your expectations that you had about this are wrong setup, right? Like, you just get to extricate her from that entirely. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that's king. Also, I think that it's a lot of work to, like, bounce back and forth between, you know, the 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 novel within the novel and then the frame narrative. And yeah. it's maybe just easier to bring them into the real world and, or, you know, the fantasy world and and go from there and and it does create like a cool little narrative in the sense of like just reading it page by page of like you never know when it's Detta walker or when it's odetta holmes mm -hmm. and they don't know that each other exist mm -hmm. and so that's a problem mm -hmm. yeah and like uh both of like it, it, we get this from odetta's perspective where she kind of like makes up like uh or she like pulls together like little just so stories to explain the gaps in her memory um but really when she comes through the door is the first time she becomes extremely aware of what's happened because uh when roland takes over for the first time and brings her uh through to the beach she is actually detta she's on one of her little detta kicks um, and this is a thing that we get through the perspective of, I think, the chauffeur. Um, it ties in with the addiction themes here. Uh, he says something about how, like, you know, um, Odetta would Odetta has this tendency to kind of like disappear for a day or a couple of days at a time. Uh, sometimes, you know, maybe it's a week or two weeks, uh, but she always shows up like she just reappears after that amount of time. And she seems perfectly fine and doesn't she always has kind of like a little bit of a story like, oh, I was over here or doing this. Uh, but it's very inconsistent and she'll just, you know, disappear and reappear. And he notices that, uh, uh, every time she, after her disappearances, she seems somehow like refreshed, uh, which is a way that, uh, you know, this is like a popular way of, of talking about this, but it's shown up explicitly in King before of talking about, uh, addicts going on benders. This is how the, like, there's an alcoholic in cycle of the werewolf, for instance, who is described as like leaving town, uh, going on his bender and then coming back and like being refreshed, right. Being recharged. Like he, he like, uh, gets a little rough. He like goes out, he drinks, he does whatever. And he comes back and he's like more together after he's like, you know, quote unquote, blown off some steam. Um, so we have that with Odetta and Detta here as well. Uh, and when they bring Detta through, uh, she like basically from the moment they bring Detta through, her goal is to kill both Roland and Eddie. Like, right. that's just what she wants to do. Like, you have done this to me. Like, I shall kill you. Uh, very interestingly, when Roland enters her mind, she not only becomes aware of the presence, um, but one, it feels sort of familiar uh, this is, you know, suggested to be because she has like the Odetta personality as well. Um, but what I thought was really interesting is that she knows Roland is white. She, uh, there is a very funny passage about that where it's like his whiteness is, it was like very apparent or something. Mm -hmm. I can find it and, and I will uh, read it, but it, it's actually really funny that St Stephen King has to like work that in. Mm -hmm. Uh, she must know that he is, that he is like spectrally white 
<laughs> right. Uh, on hold on, I think I actually. Oh, this yeah, down. I do have it. It's on page two forty-seven. Yeah. Um. Uh. Let me. Uh, uh. Apologies for the language being used here. Uh. When the gunslinger entered her head in Macy's, Detta screamed in a combination of fury and horror and terror. Her hands freezing on the junk jewelry she was scooping into her purse because she's shoplifting because she's Detta Walker. She screamed because when Roland came forward, came into her mind, when he came forward, she was for a moment sensed the other, as if a door had been swung open inside her head, meaning she senses Odetta. And she screamed because the invading, raping presence was a honky. She could not see, but nonetheless sensed his whiteness. How about that? Yeah. And I, that's just, that's an interesting, like... I don't think you need to like overanalyze or overread this. It's one of those moments where uh, it is interesting to pause for a moment and consider there like what is what is the imaginary of race happening? Because, you know, when when Roland shows up in Eddie's mind, Eddie doesn't think like, my God, there's a white man in my head. Um, Like that's, you know, race doesn't come up. Uh, but somehow, right, Detta can sense Roland's whiteness. Uh, blackness produces race. Mm-hmm. I mean, like not not literally in the world, but in this in the imaginary of the book, right? Or within the uh, metaphysics as presented in her capability of being able to see this, you know, uh, force psychic force as white, right? P- people are uh, race does not exist in Roland's world, like in the way that we think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, again, Eddie doesn't recognize Roland's whiteness, right? It is the moment in which blackness is introduced into the novel uh, it, that produces reflexively whiteness itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that this is, a, this is a, a common kind of narrative, right? Whiteness presents itself as uh, unraced, as unmarked, and it is, in fact, difference that then, you know, uh, retrojectively makes whiteness appear. That's the imaginary of whiteness's default. That's what it does in the world is say, well, we were nothing until we had to define ourselves against something mm-hmm. else um and uh and so then therefore like problems of racism are, are not directly attached to white supremacy or white power or anything like that they are attached to uh the production of race through difference mm-hmm. um and so yeah i mean that that's weird it's a weird moment for for that to show up mm-hmm. uh but uh as we've already said like that i mean Detta is shouts like a whole bunch of awful stuff constantly forever, but then she'll also sort of like switch back to being Odetta, who is very cooperative and very kind, and Eddie immediately falls in love with her. Like in oh, the space cartoonish. in the space of their first conversation. Yeah, it's like, is that the conversation where it's like already he could feel himself falling in yes. love with her? Yes, that's yeah. like literally the line that gets used, which, yeah. uh, I, okay, right? Like, this is kind of a fantasy story. We're kind of running on an accelerated timeline. Later on, uh, Eddie and Odetta, like, sleep together um, after Roland's, like, he doesn't take enough Keflex. He doesn't have enough of it. Uh, so his infection comes back and he uh, worsens and they have to go, uh, Eddie and Odetta have to go off together uh, to accomplish some stuff. And while they're kind of out on their thing, like to comfort one another, they end up uh, having sex. Um, and it's actually the precise same thing that we talked about in Skeleton Crew for the mist and the weird, uh, uh, like, 
romance quote-unquote scene there between the protagonist and that woman he meets in the grocery store except it works better here because uh it's like a lot less apocalyptic and morbid and it's more uh, uh, in the vein that i was talking about back then that like this is more like okay right this is like an adventure story and part of the adventure story is that uh you can get pulled into the fantasy world why not meet a person that you also immediately fall in love with sure let's let's go with that um it does, though, ultimately just not read very convincingly uh, for like, you know, it, a, a, for as as characters. Right. It makes them feel like uh, plot elements. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just not it doesn't feel earned in any kind of way. It feels like part of the genre. And, you know, the flip side of that, too. Right. Again, I think this is is uh, not even the flip side, but just in addition to that, um, I think it's King thinking seriously about like the. um uh, the response he's received about writing about race and writing about blackness in particular, right? So he's like, why should not... I, I guess in the mid-1980s, it, it probably is a bigger bombshell to be thinking about that immediately there's an interracial relationship, mm -hmm. right? Even at this point in, in 87. Um, uh, and I think that's like an important thing to, to mark here. And I think that that is driving this kind of plot decision as much as anything else is. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know... Uh, that that ultimately Eddie and Odetta fall or, or you know fall in love as people, right outside of the context of the of of New York, right in this fantasy world, um, where lots of social systems fall away and where they probably would never have met one another. And I mean, they definitely wouldn't have <laughs> since she is fifteen years older than than Eddie or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, their timelines are different; they're from different time periods. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so the likelihood of them meeting period is just minimal. And also, Eddie would have died of heroin overdose at some point. Um, and uh, because you know, Roland is saving his life; that's part of this plot. Um, but so I think that's a big part of it too. Is, is Stephen King being like, not only do I do race stuff good, you know, I'm thinking about his doubling down that we read around it. Not only do I do it good, but I'm going to push the envelope here in ways that you're not ready for, mass media, you know, reader, um, and, you know, giving us uh, an interracial relationship, mm -hmm. which I, I will say even me reading this in the early 2000s, I was like, dang, mm -hmm. what? Because, you know, uh, I, I was like 11, 12, living in a nearly mono white era area in the rural South, mm -hmm. right? Like uh, uh, the, these uh, uh, interracial interracial relationships are extremely rare in that area. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that uh, you are correct. Like one of the when I was reading this, also is I don't know, twelve year old or whatever, um, thirteen year old maybe. Mm -hmm. um, the it, 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 shocking maybe is not the right word, but it was like I I picked it up, and I think this is still like the case, right? It is so clearly telegraphed, like. King not only wants to give us this interracial relationship, but he wants to make it like a good thing, right? He writes about it uh, in basically like, I don't even mean this, you know, in a, in a derogatory way, but like some of the most saccharine ways that we've gotten uh, a romance written about from him thus far, right? Like the, uh, the like instant, like cosmic love between eddie and Susanna, like literally when they have sex uh uh on the beach um it, the the line says something about like the strange galaxies turning in the heavens overhead or something right mm -hmm. uh it's very much him trying to i think uh 
maybe push back on some of those questions that like the reader in Castle Rock had, which is like, you know, why is it that whenever uh, black people show up in, in your work, there's always something uh, negative or hostile attached to it? Like what's going on here? And uh, he kind of produces this interrelational relationship as a uh, proof positive, like, no, here is where I stand on this. Like, I think that this is like, you know, uh, you know, just it's good and normal and beautiful and like, like, that's where where I want you to uh, understand where all of like the anchoring point for all of the stuff about race in this novel, uh, I think, you know, comes down to the fact that he can have Eddie and Odetta or as we're going to call her for the rest of these books, <laughs> Susanna. Right. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but we'll get to that. Uh, uh, having that relationship uh, in in the little like adventure party here, I think, is is very crucial for him. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and I mean, maybe we can just say that here, right? So what happens is that uh, third door shows up. Uh, Roland's infection is coming back, so he did not. As and it's really funny. I say this. Uh, I still say this. Uh, so I definitely picked this up when I was like eleven. You know, reading this book. But, uh, you know, Roland didn't quote bat for the cycle, you know, <laughs> um, and so he didn't finish up the cycle of drugs of, of uh, uh, um, what do you call it? Um, Keflex. Yeah, Keflex. But what's the type of thing? Penicillin. Nope. What? Uh, not antibiotic. Yes. There we go. That's okay. what, That's sorry. That's the word I was trying to think of. He didn't finish up the round of antibiotics. Right. So he didn't kill the infection. It's coming back. Uh, you know, there's this kind of heightening up. I do like these like shuffle scenes um, where it's like Roland is fading in and out of consciousness kind of in between the doors. And mm -hmm. so you just get these little snippets of them traveling across the beach and eating lobstrosities and all this kind of stuff. Um, they get to the, to the third door. Uh, Roland goes through it. He realizes he's Jack or that this is Jack Mort. Uh, he co he comes into him in the moment of where he is about to push Jake. Mm -hmm. um, in in front of the car that kills him that we learned about in the gunslinger and Roland chooses not to do that. Mm -hmm. He comes forward immediately, takes over Jack Mort's body and does not push mm -hmm. uh, Jake into the street. And, you know, the book says like, Roland did not consider the paradox that this would create <laughs> um, and the issue it would, and the, which is going to dominate, you know, the first quarter or so of uh, the wasteland is like, uh, what What implications does this have in the world mm -hmm. uh, for when you create essentially a paradox? Mm -hmm. um, and we'll dig into that when we get there. But so he decides not to, he runs away, and then we kind of get these backstories of Jack Mort, of um, of him dropping the brick um, on uh, Odetta when she was a child, of him pushing her out in front of the train, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then we get like Roland's wacky adventures uh, because there's no like communication back and forth. There's none of this like play that there was with Eddie of like kind of comedy scenes of like, you know, uh, Roland experiencing the world. And yeah, there's like not Roland, the quick Roland like apprehending the journey through customs as like this like <laughs> semi-religious ritual where he had like Eddie has to prostrate himself before clerics and things. Right, right, yeah, like, there's none of that, there's none of that fun stuff that, that occurs, you know, we're like this, like, uh, fish out of water story, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. None of that, he just takes over Jack Mort's body, and he's like, alright, I have some stuff I need to do, 
<laughs> you know, like I need to go get some antibiotics. I need to see if I can buy ammunition to take it back to my world. Right. It's a, it's a very direct <laughs> set of things that he has going on uh, where he just takes over Jack Mort's body and he's just rolling in a different body. And that's, that's fun in and of itself in a different way, but it's a different kind of story. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Detta Walker has, uh, she was left alone for a little while as Odetta Holmes and flips over to Detta Walker and then crawls up like into the hills mm-hmm. and uh, can't be found. Um, and uh, and so is like lurking in the background and waits for Eddie Dean to fall asleep and then crawls out of the hills, um, you know, on on uh, on her hands and then like trusses him up and leaves him for the lobstrosity. So there's a little bit like a tipping, ticking time bomb scenario going on here where Roland is trying to finish everything he wants to do as Jack Mort uh, before Eddie is killed by lobsters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Roland has no trouble like doing everything he wants uh, in Jack Mort's <laughs> body because he fucking hates him. <laughs> like he finds yes, him like, like I- he, he's a monster and repulsive because he's just, you know, he's, he's this Patrick Hockstetter style, like no interiority, just like wants to hurt things and murder and whatever. And so Roland shows up and he's like, well, this guy sucks. Like, Assuming direct control, like time to get my bullets. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah, that's the whole thing. He pilots him like a mech around for a very long time, and like strat, he like knocks a couple cops out and like straps their belts around his waist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's this like interesting maneuver that's going on with the cops where Roland like think he thinks they're gunslingers, right? Mm-hmm. Like cop is the best thing that he can come into, and that's the thing that we really are going to talk about less here and more probably with uh, Wizard and Glass when we get there is like. Gunslingers are like, as we learn more about Roland's world, they're like cops, aristocracy, uh, knights, Mm -hmm. you know, they're like all of these things. And what essentially is not for a long time, for the most part, is not a restoration fantasy, which is a little bit weird because that's the way that King has written all of his fantasy novels so far, right? Like they're restoration fantasies. The order, uh, even though it is falling apart uh will be restored you mm-hmm. know that's that's the two that we've read so far in the dark tower by its very nature right the world has moved on you can't have a restoration fantasy so what's going on with this character who desires the restoration fantasy that can never be delivered mm-hmm. um and there's some like weird stuff going on with it um that takes on a weird tenor i think a weird political tenor um as the things go on but so he like thinks the cops are like honorable mm-hmm. you know they're gunslingers but and they're like he doesn't want to kill them. You know mm-hmm. that's deeply a thing he doesn't want to do. But he also, you know, there's like the, the classic king fat phobia, right? They're fat and they're slow. Yeah, and and so they, you know, they kind of deserve what's coming to them. He clunks their heads together. Uh-huh. These two cops, like a fucking cartoon, <laughs> and knocks them out and steals all their shit after after using them to like implicate a guy who runs a gun shop. Uh, like falsely implicate him for having stolen his wallet so he can uh, basically like buy a bunch of things without a permit. Uh, Not not really an observation there. I just think it's very funny that like Roland goes into this gun shop. He's like, my God, (laughs) like how much ammunition can I get? I would like three. And he's thinking like, oh my God, this must be, it must be worth like a a king's fortune. And he finds out that it's uh, $60 for three boxes or something. And he tries to buy it. And the guy's like, well, I guess I need your permit. Um, And so he engineers this situation where he tells the cops that the guy in the gun shop uh, uh, stole his wallet and won't give it back so he can get them in there and then do all this stuff. Uh, I do think just to touch on the restoration fantasy angle very briefly, I was also tracking this 
and I think it's so interesting how Roland uh conceives of the job of the gunslinger as people who were trying to stop the world from moving on and they're people right. and like they failed right the world did move on and then he sees these cops and he projects onto them the same fantasy right you are you are supposed to be men who are here to guard the world to guard the light and keep it from moving on uh and you're not doing that because you're you know lazy and uh, uh fat and whatever um but yeah, yeah, and he also uh, doesn't want to kill them because ultimately he went to them and was like, hey, can you please help me? And we get this like second scene from the POV of the cops and they're only doing it because this guy's like uh, he's connected to Janelli's mob. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that Janelli is like the er mobster, right? You know, <laughs> the the curse of the white man from town is everywhere <laughs> and it's across all universes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, so it's purely self. It's not to help this man really, right? Mm-hmm. This is an excuse to violate the rights of this business owner right to get at his boss i mean that's like the truth of of the matter right but from roland's perspective it's it's because they tried to help him and all this kind of stuff so he doesn't want to kill them mm-hmm. um and uh but yeah so he like goes and robs um a pharmacy gets some keflex gets a, a bunch of keflex um and he gets his ammunition and then uh gets jack mort killed mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like later sucker yeah, I I mean no, I this is the good Roland to me, right? Not good as in like capital G good, right? But like I like the Roland of the Gunslinger, of the original cut of the Gunslinger, right? Like I like this amoral anti-hero kind of dude, right? Like I not like objectively like him, but I think that's such an interesting character. I think that the character of Roland as he is depicted in these early books is like a man who will plow the earth under to get the goal that he wants Mm -hmm. Um, i think that's such a compelling fiction obviously that's like deeply poisonous in the real world right right right, right. i think i think that's like not good i don't want to be misunderstood or misinterpreted right but as a character i find that just fascinating i think you know in the same way that i really like uh uh anathem this is like a weird connection right but like (laughs) the the kind of cloistered monks in anathem Uh they got they got one goal and it's like preservation and uh, you know, moving forward. I think this is probably why you like um, uh, Canical for Leibowitz so much too, right? There, mm-hmm. There's something about these goal-driven characters who are willing to pair off the world uh, to do their one thing that I find really compelling in fiction. Yeah. And ultimately, I think the lesson of the Dark Tower is that sucks mm-hmm. <laughs> and you shouldn't be that way, which like is like real world true, but I don't think is as compelling of a character. I think the Dark Tower as a series is mostly about softening um, uh, uh, roll into his detriment, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But uh, so yeah, so he like you know just executes this this guy. It is interesting, I think, here just like to think about real world politics that Stephen King has introduced his kind of like amoral, you know, uh, flat sociopathic character. You know, the 1980s understanding of the sociopath, the fantasy of the sociopath. Um, you know, in the era of the serial killer, he has introduced these characters only to inflict the most amount of har- harm and pain to them mm-hmm. and then kill them immediately. Mm-hmm. Like there's something real like uh, psychological American wish fulfillment, you know, going back to Dance Macabre, you know, he shows you the the thing everyone's afraid of and then it, it, he gets his just re- desserts, right? Right. Like, uh, the serial killer deserves to be gunned down in the street, uh, you know, in the in the mechanism of the novel here Mm -hmm. um what do you think about how he repairs repairs big quotation marks repairs susanna here because he uses it with the doorway 
And I'll be honest, until probably I've read this book four or five times, until the last time I read this, I didn't understand what was happening here at all. Uh, this it Maybe you got something out of it this time that might be more interesting to say. What I can say is that it just feels like such an ass pull that this happens and it works. And, like, Roland seems to just know, right? Roland's just like, oh, here's what we have to do to, like, uh, uh, you know, quell the two women inside her. And it's just like, why do you know this? Like, why is this happening? Like, okay, it worked, but, like, what on earth? Like, you just discovered these doorways. How could... So what he does is he, like, orchestrates a situation wherein... uh, in the in real world New York, he uses Jack Mort's body to look, turn around and look back through the door. Because when you pass through the door from the beach, uh, when you're in the body, uh, the the doorway is invi- it's still there, but it's invisible to everyone else, and it sort of like floats behind you. And then if you look behind you, you can see it. So like when uh, Roland is in Eddie's body, Eddie can look behind him and see the doorway and see the beach and everything. Um, and uh, what. Roland ends up doing is orchestrating a situation where Odetta is looking through the, or rather it's Detta at this point, is looking through the door while he turns around and looks at the door so she sees herself looking at herself and this like makes her into a whole person? Yep. I I don't know how it actually works. Like, like and I, I, it, we don't need to think about it because yeah. it doesn't matter. Right, like at the end of the day, but for by looking through the doorway and seeing themselves as roll through the mechanism of the doorway, it allows like Deda to see Odetta and Odetta to see Deda. Mm-hmm. They complete the mirror stage and they become an integrated subject. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Right. I mean, for for Stephen King's hatred of psychoanalysis, this is a pretty weirdly psychoanalytic, but like psychoanal psychoanalysis by way of telephone. Yes. Right? Like, I don't know. I guess it just kind of works. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah, it's pretty fascinating in that regard to me. But who cares? Whatever. Uh, fantasy shit. Uh, it works out. It repairs uh, the thing. And uh, she she's one person. Now she's Susanna, but she's not just Susanna. She's fantasy married. Yes. Immediately. <laughs> yes. Her name is now Susanna Dean. Yes. That's so so, so Su- that's the restoration. Like yeah. that's the like like what what if Star Wars happened and there was no <laughs> final battle? They didn't blow up the Death Star. But the but it just ended with Luke and Leia getting married. Oh goodness. I mean that would be this novel. Yeah. You know, conceptually. It's like, here's a bunch of events that happened, and uh, I don't know, who cares? Whatever. Bad guy's still over there. If there is a bad guy, it doesn't matter. Really, what matters is that uh, the two protagonists get married. Right, right. The end. Yeah, no, their their union is the capstone to kind of this narrative, uh, or like sort of the the larger part of the narrative of this, of this novel. Uh, Susanna doesn't come out of nowhere, because as we learn at the moment that the name is revealed to us, it was also the middle names of both uh, Odetta and Detta. Right. So, uh, you know, some real, like... <laughs> Literally splitting the difference there, like we'll meet in the middle, meet in the middle name. Uh, and yeah, she isn't just she's Susanna Dean, like fantasy married on the hell murder lobster beach. I Yeah, OK. <laughs> yep. And now they're like headed south. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, and Roland uh, is getting stronger and he's like teaching them how to, you know, do gun stuff and how to hunt and how to survive. Like he he starts training them from the moment that he brings them over. Right. That's the other like we didn't really talk about it because it's not terribly important. Um, But he's basically training them to be gunslingers. And I think and I think uh, the end even says like, you know, they are now the final three gunslingers. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that is the, the, the whole deal here is he is like reconvening uh, a thing. Notably here, I think a couple things are really fascinating. So the, the beams are not here, Mm-mm. but we got the beams in it. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting to me, or at least that one, one thing, right? Ka is here. Oh yeah. And like Eddie's whole making fun of it. Kaka, you mean like Kaka shit? Which is going to show up an annoying number of times for the next thousand pages. Uh, we get that here, but not really paid off in too direct, directly of a way, right? Like the whole Ka is like a wheel, blah, blah, blah. That's that's to come, mm-hmm. right? So uh, to me, what was fascinating about reading it was seeing some of this, um, I don't know, uh, some of the groundwork of the Dark Tower that I thought would immediately be paid off in the drawing of the three, but I don't think is going to get developed nearly as much uh, until the Wastelands when uh, we get our additional character in and then um, the, like, village of old people, if you remember that, from the Wastelands. I think that's where some of the stuff comes in, too. So uh, King sits on it a little bit longer than I thought he did, Mm -hmm. uh, which is fascinating to me. Um, the end is bizarre. Same way. This is the final, this is the final thing. Because, you know, Eddie says, look, man, like, we're here, but this is like a fantasy world and it sucks. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? He's like, it, it sucks to live here. Like, what are you talking about? And, uh, you know, he's now over his heroin addiction. Thankfully, it just takes a, a strong gunslinger to bully you. And all of the lessons that Roland learns, or not learns, but like teaches to them about like, comportment you know how to how to be an adult like not to be a, such a, a wiener about stuff for eddie in particular all of that is coming from um he, he flashes back to court right mm-hmm. uh, his his trainer um and i really like some of that stuff he talks about their graduation day you know i think there were 56 gunslingers and only 13 made it through mm-hmm. um, we don't have yet here what the mechanism is for that i don't think about having your leg broken no. Um, or your arm broken, mm-hmm. but but you know, being made to go west uh, is the or, or east, whatever. Who cares? Uh, the uh, the the mechanism there, but you know, when they graduate, court uh, is it's the first time in thirty years he's not able to be at the graduation, so they all have to go to his like hut and like you know um, uh, pay tribute to him as their teacher there, and then he's going to be killed immediately, and then like the world ends, right? The civil war comes and destroys what's going on. And we get that all in like a little paragraph, but mm-hmm. that's some stuff. that's really cool. But the end of the book is Eddie and Roland talking and being like, you'll kill us. Won't you <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm kind of worried that you'll, you'll just let us die. Cause you've talked about all your friends and they're all dead. They're not here. And Roland's like, yeah, I guess I will. And then this happens. This is like section five of the final chapter um, of, I don't know what the final chapter is called. Final shuffle. Eddie eventually slept beside Susanna, the third Roland had drawn to make a new three, because he is the third. But Roland sat awake and listened to voices in the night while the wind dried and tears uh, while the wind dried the tears on his cheeks. Damnation? Salvation? The tower. He would come to the dark tower and there he would sing their names. There he would sing their names. There he would sing all their names. 
The sun stained the east a dusky rose, and at last Roland, no longer the last gunslinger, but one of the last three, slept and dreamed his angry dreams through which there ran only one soothing blue thread. There I will sing all their names. And like I this this book like doesn't I don't think this book is the best of them. I think you're right. I think The Wastelands is the better book of all of them. Um, uh, I think it's the one where all the pieces kind of click into place, and it's all the pieces that then kind of domino in through the ends of the books. Mm-hmm. I I think there is some real, we'll talk about it, but I think there's some real rosy red glasses about these first four that people have when they kind of talk about the things that don't work in the uh, uh, in the last three I think they really do hold together as a, as a piece more than the fandom kind of talks about. But you know, I I'll be honest with you. I was reading the, these last night, and like this final bit got me. Mm-hmm. I was like, God damn! Like you know, like it's not just about the tower. It's not just about the quest, but it's about like paying homage to the world that that blew up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, before. And again, this is kind of like another run at it, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I know that Stephen King says, uh, you know, in those interviews that I was reading, 84, 85, he's like, it is me putting a pin in the, my novels about children and my novels about the kind of nostalgia era. You know, the 1958 stuff is him kind of trying to close that all up. But goddamn, what is this if not another, you know, vibe of that, right? right? Like, Do you ever have uh, friends like you did before the world moved on? Right, right. No, and no, you don't, right? right? Like, that's what we learn. And in fact, you don't to the point where you're going to have to recreate your friend group. Um, You know, you have to re-recruit Cuthbert Mm -hmm. and you have to re-recruit Alan um, and all of these things. And you're you're going to have to reinvent your own son again, right? Mm -hmm. Like your your proxy son that you killed in a moment of selfishness and trying to get to the tower, you're going to have to resurrect him because that's the only thing to do. Um, uh, you know, it's funny that Stephen King wanted to stop writing novels about children. And then he wrote a, uh, his masterwork series. That's essentially about like, can, can you preserve the world enough to give it to the child in front of you? Mm -hmm. And the answer kind of being no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Right. You know, not to, not to get too uh, far ahead, but the answer being much more ambivalent and, uh, compromised than I think a fantasy novel would normally give. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that's part of it. And I, I'll, I'll preview, I guess, my my reading of the Dark Tower series in a general sense is I think everyone needs it slash wants it to be a restoration fantasy in line with the rest of his stuff. And he just can't bear it, bring himself to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's um, And the way he. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, that's what I was thinking was interesting. You you talking about the it commentary track where he says he mm. wants to tell a story where, you know, like the good guys win and they can win and so on. Uh, because I yeah. said this back in the Salem's Lot episode, what is so distinctive to me about King is that, yeah, m- much of the time, that's the story he's going to tell. And he is, but always lingering kind of in the back. He has the ability to just say like, and the good guys lost because sometimes evil just fucking wins, right? Sometimes the stuff just doesn't come together in the right way. Sometimes uh, the connection isn't made. Sometimes the the thing in front of you falls to pieces and you have to live with that. Like, that's what happens. Uh, and yeah, so uh, back to what you were saying. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's right. I, I think it's a really good connection. Uh, Salem's Lot being, you know, got that or that and Cujo. Cujo yes. maybe being the other, like, just massive, like, fuck you. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it, w- which is what makes that novel work, right? Like, if that novel had a happy ending, 
Um, kind of like we talked about with the film, right? Like the film is okay because it like we get a freeze frame, right? We don't have to like live through the thing, but that novel works because it's sh- because it is so bleak, right? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what makes Pet Cemetery work too. Is that like sometimes you have to look reality in the face and realize like the the supernatural won't save you in that regard, right? Mm-hmm. Like the supernatural's got it, it; it has it in for you, right? There's no big capital W white. Uh, the supernatural is going to get you and it's like going to have to be humans living their life that, that, you know, wins out here. Um, What's fascinating about Salem's lot and thinking about that is in these mid eighties interviews, I think maybe I read it in an interview in um, that bare bones book. Sorry, I'm looking behind me. Um, I think it's in that bare bones book that I was talking about in the it episode, but uh, there's an interview he did somewhere around that time where Someone asks him about novels that he wanted to write, but he hasn't yet. And one of the ones is a sequel to Salem's Lot. Um, And he says during the early 80s, he'd had a plan in his mind or an idea in his mind to write a sequel to Salem's Lot about uh, the kid coming back, basically, Mm -hmm. and returning to the town and then getting rid of the vampires once and for all. And he just couldn't square it. it. Like... He, he the reason he doesn't or at least in the interview he says the reason he never went for it is he couldn't square that idea um with like what happens at the end of that novel like he couldn't figure out why what mark is that kid's yeah, name mark. uh he couldn't figure out why mark would 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 do that or could do that um and it's fascinating to me that when he does return to Salem's lot it's not through mark mm-hmm. mark did go live his own life right mark went off and did something else and had to kind of live with the reality of what occurred to him um, and you know, when, when Salem's lot stuff shows back up, it's in a very different register, um, and way, you know, and he does, I guess, go back to his, uh, you know, second swing child novel with Dr. Sleep eventually, mm-hmm. but even that's not, that's not what, um, you know, uh, the end of that novel is not what you would want from the end of a, um, the shining sequel. I think, I, I think a lot of people were unhappy with the end of that novel, um, I'm I'm very excited to get to that in two years or whatever. I think that's something that really is going to be fascinating, having really closely walked through a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. um, especially the fact that Stephen King basically, in his drive to return to early themes and early ideas at this kind of later point in his career, uh, has ignored all of the 90s. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. He just pretends as if the 90s didn't happen, right? Yeah. Like, when's the last time Stephen King went back to the well of uh, Rose Matter? Right. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um he, he just, you know, he's uninterested in that. So anyway, that, that's a, that's a long thing to say. Like I, you know, the end of this novel really kind of got me. I, I, I told you before we started reading that, that I thought this would go a lot faster for you. Um, and, uh, I, I, it sounds like it didn't for you, but I will say for me, I read this really quickly. Mm-hmm. Like I, I was able to kind of blitz through it and partially it's because I've read it so many times, but also like, I think it's a page turner, even the parts that I think are really clunky. I mean, all the, all of the race stuff around, Odetta and Detta is just like, you know, it's, it's rough to get through. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but, but, but it's probably, you know, more thoughtfully considered than a lot of other Stephen King work in a, in a similar arena. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I found it like, sl- I didn't have a hard time with this, but I found it slower going than I think you thought I would, if only because, uh, the dark tower stuff, almost always doesn't quite work for me, right? I, I'm, <laughs> I, like, like I said at the beginning, I'm really interested in going back to the Wastelands because that's the one that I really like. That's the one that I remember, as the way you put it about uh, all the cl- all the pieces clicking together. Like, I remember having that feeling while reading that book for the first time where I was like, 
oh, that's what this could be. Like, that's what this story could be about. This is cool. So I am interested in, in, in going back to that. This time it was kind of like... Uh, what the other thing that you pointed out the the discrepancy between like uh incident and filler is just very mm-hmm. notable or like not notable but it's like as you're reading it you you come to realize like oh only a couple of things actually matter a lot of stuff that's happening here is just kind of like sitting in a character's head or like uh working through possibilities like what could Roland do now that he is in this position what are his options let's go through them one by one and find out like what the best one is yeah yeah there's a lot of i mean it feels like three short stories that are like stapled together with 100 extra pages of just random stuff yeah. right um it's also worth thinking about too that he's writing this while he's working on the revisions to the stand yes like to the revised and updated or blah, 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 whatever thing. And I do wonder if this is him also, because I mean, that's requiring him to sit back and think about these previous characters. And mother Abigail is a character who he has, he he would, he was critiqued for. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I wonder if that's showing up partially here too. And, in some of the ways that all these characters are written about, right? Like there's no, there's no, uh, Stu Redmond here. Right. Right. Uh, not even, not even Roland gets to be Stu Redmond here. Right. Eddie Dean is just another run at Larry Underwood. Like what if Larry yeah. Underwood, uh, never made it big and never left New York, right? They're, they're the same kind of, uh, New York, uh, like street tough wise ass otherwise. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> or another Richie, right? Yeah. Thank God Eddie doesn't do the voices yet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Um, but anyway, I don't know. I, I, uh, I think the book's pretty good, but also is like, you know, uh, uh, yeah, Mm -hmm. very little happens. Very little. I I mean, if you want to read the dark tower, then go read the dark tower. Like, yeah, (laughs) like this is, this doesn't work. I think in, in the normal way where we can like recommend or not recommend a book. This is just like, if you want to read the dark tower. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Like give it a shot. You'll read this book. Read it. (laughs) <laughs> exactly, I think that's right. Um, what's your favorite Kingism here? This is, a, this is a segment where we talk about the thing that is the most kind of kingy in the novel, a passage, a phrase, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my favorite Kingism here is the phrase Tudorfish. <laughs> this is how <laughs> when Roland goes over to Eddie's uh, uh, version of New York for the first time, he is uh, Roland is basically, you know, starving. Um, he's both poisoned, like injured and starving, uh, and he's on a plane and he requests a meal service from a flight attendant and, uh, she offers him, uh, a tuna fish sandwich and, uh, Roland is really thrown off his balance because he doesn't know what a sandwich is, uh, but it is close to something from his world that he calls a popkin. So he's like, oh, okay, these are just popkins. Uh, but he also doesn't know what tuna fish is, and so he uh, uh, malapropes it as tutor fish, and this is how he thinks of it throughout the rest of this novel, and I'm pretty sure it comes up in a couple of other later novels where he just, like, mentions his tutor fish popkins. Uh, tutor, spelled T-O-O-T-E-R, and then just fish on the end. Uh, one other thing that I think you can really tell from this book in particular is that King has raised a couple of kids. Because a lot of these malapropisms feel like things he's, like, heard his kids say, or, like, his kids have said something close, and he's been like, oh, that would be something for, like, Roland to, to you know, uh, the other one is um, aspirin, that Roland takes his Aston. 
Yeah. Um, but for whatever reason, of uh, there are a bunch of them in this book. For whatever reason, out of all of them, for me, the one that really sticks is Tudorfish. Tudorfish is the one that has like worked into my actual like idiolect, where I will <laughs> say to my wife, "It's like I'd really like a Tudorfish sandwich," and she's like, "What are you talking about? What is this?" Mm-hmm. She says, "Michael, I think you mean a popkin." <laughs> yes. <laughs> the uh, yeah, I, so so mine is uh, I, you know I don't. It's a similar kind of like distal effect thing going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's on page two eighty nine for me. You know, I, I maybe maybe earlier. I, you know, uh, it's easy not to. Uh, maybe I don't know. Detta Walker is a monster, mm-hmm. right? Like like a like a cartoon monster who speaks entirely in again what what uh, what Eddie calls like uh, like a cartoonish, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, uh, dialect right she has a heavy southern black dialect that that he takes as acting yes right that like it's so far away from how odetta speaks that it's inauthentic right it's like an imagination of an imagination of an imagination he he likens it to uh one of the characters from gone with the wind right Mm -hmm. to give you an idea this kind of uh you know racist racial and racist performance past um and so uh you know, so it means that she, you know, everything she says is written in dialect. Uh, she's like screeching and screaming all the time. She's threatening to castrate them. You know, I mean, it's it's truly monstrous blackness in a way that uh, I think it's like unwarranted, right? Like it, it just goes beyond the pale. Um, and maybe that's why we didn't say as much about it earlier. Is like it's so far beyond like the bounds of like representation mm-hmm. that King himself has to be like this is beyond the bounds of representation. Right. Um, I don't know what to do with it. I truly, actually, literally do not know what to do with Dedo Walker as a character. Um, and uh, But I do think the most kind of Kingian, not but, but also, I do think the most kind of Kingian thing is on 289 for me, right? So this is uh, uh, Roland, like, pretending, or not pretending, but trying to sleep, but he's, like, awake. And he says, yet he sensed that what was really needed, what really needed doing was not killing, but joining. He had already recognized much that would be of value to him, them, in Detta Walker's gutter toughness, and he wanted her, but he wanted her under control. There was a long, there was a long way to go. Detta thought he and Eddie were monsters of some species she called honk motherfuckers. Yes, uh, uh, that was only dangerous. That was uh, that was only dangerous delusion. But there could be real. There would be real monsters along the way. The lobstrosities were not the first. Nor would they be the last. The fight until you drop a woman he had entered and who had come out of hiding again tonight might might come in handy, in very handy, in a fight against such monsters if she could be tempered by Odetta Holmes's calm humanity. Right? Odetta Holmes's calm humanity. Especially now, with him short two fingers, almost out of bullets, and growing more fever. Alright? So, like, to me, this is, like, all of the, like, uh, power of Stephen King's writing and also like all the missteps, right? Mm-hmm. Like he truly is saying that there's like a monstrous blackness that would be really helpful uh-huh. here and really powerful in this fantasy world. And also if only it could be tamed appropriately within like the good uh, liberal humanity of Odetta, mm-hmm. right? Like that to me is like Stephen King's liberal imagination, like fully mapped out, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, if only the calm honor of a people could be harnessed for good, right? Mm-hmm. For truly the W, the capital white, right? Um, so it's like, buh, Steve. But then it's also like this fantasy-ass narrative, right? And this like pitch toward the first, right? There will be other monsters. These are not the first, mm-hmm. right? Like 
this book has so much like, hey, there's some cool shit coming, y'all. And <laughs> like, here's the deal. There is cool shit coming. He's right. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> like the wasteland rocks. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this this to me, reading the, the, the book, I was like, wow, this is like this is the whole damn deal all in one thing. And like, in some ways, Stephen King's got his own Odetta Holmes, Detta Walker thing going on, not in like split personalities or anything like that, but in the like, he seems to have it all under control and like have in his mind a particular kind of good liberal racial imagination or a good liberal, um, you know, perspective toward uh, feminism, equality, whatever, in any kind of given way. And then like just steps in it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, every now and again in a way that is like deeply, um, you know, a thing you have to sit and talk about. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll get more of that going forward. Mm. Uh, the next segment is what in the Kingiverse, where we kind of uh, run through any connections in what we just read to uh, King's larger body of work, which we are calling the Kingiverse. I don't think that's unique to us, but uh, in case you're just jumping in uh, and you've never heard that phrase before, this is a little difficult, if only because the Dark Tower is kind of the linchpin of the Kingiverse. So, like, what in the Kingiverse? It's it's this. It's this series. <laughs> like. Right. Yeah. Like, Ka, uh, Gunslingers, right? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, here we do JFK. get the first JFK instance is the last... of JFK. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I got so excited. I ran over oh, it's you. okay. Yeah. This is the first time I believe that JFK is called a gunslinger. I can, mm -hmm. if you want to talk about it a little bit, I can find the passage. Oh, it's at the very beginning of Odetta's section. It's like one of the first yeah. things we get is her sitting uh, in the back of her car listening to her chauffeur because it's just after, it's like a, a year or two after the Kennedy assassination, not long at all. Um, and her chauffeur is saying something about how, like, uh, he was the last gunslinger and how we get into Odetta's head is that like the phrase, the last gunslinger, like echoing or like seeming to like pull her out of a, a, a daydream or something, because suddenly that phrase seems so charged with significance, uh, because of, you know, like, uh, Ka, which if you haven't read these series and you've just heard us talk about this is explained in this book is basically being a word, uh, from like Roland's like, society uh mm -hmm. that means both uh like fate like it means like the machinations of fate for instance but it also means like your soul right it's like this fundam it's this way of describing like the the fundamental pull of who you are uh you know it's what augustine would have called like the fish hook of grace right god's grace or something yeah, it can also be a locate. I mean, the other word that I really thought about here, too, because he says it could also stand in for like a destination or a location. Mm -hmm. uh, the word telos, right? Yes. Like, um, you know, get, grabs a lot of this, too. So, yeah, he kind of creates his own terminology that explicitly gets like religified later on in the series, too. Mm hmm. Um, you know, people who like worship Ka explicitly. Right. So like for, for Odetta, we get, uh, you know, the, the echoing term, the last gunslinger here being used to refer to Kennedy, but of course is also like part of her fate as someone who is going to uh, be with the last gunslinger on his quest for the tower. Mm -hmm. And be one of the last gunslingers, yes. like, you know, kind of retroactively. Uh, the other thing that's really interesting here, too, it's on page, as you said, yeah, it's at the very beginning of the Detta and Odetta chapter um, uh, it's on 205, 206, 207 for me. The interesting thing here to me about this whole section was basically her driver's talking, like narrating some story about, uh, 
JFK being the last gunslinger and then like talking through this political op-ed column, which I assume is probably a real mm-hmm. column that was written. Um, and it's really actually really soon because it's three months. It's three months and two days since mm-hmm. Kennedy was killed. Okay. Yeah. Um, because right. Because Johnson is not yet like bullied through the Civil Rights Act. That's like part of, you know, the, the speculation about what's going to happen with Johnson doing that. And uh, the. Uh, um, but but the thing here being that she outwardly is saying repeatedly like you know he he was fine you know like he like JFK was okay you know but I don't think he was the last gunslinger she keeps saying that and then we get this internal monologue from her where she's like she knows exactly how long it was since he was killed mm-hmm. right three months and two days and he doesn't he says oh it's been what two months something like that. So she's got that. And then in her mind, repeatedly, we keep getting this thing of like, she knows he was the last gunslinger. She knows he was so important. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of, it's this uh, kind of imposition, right? In the sense of like, either on one hand, it's mystical, right? And like gunslinger, recognize gunslinger, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe that, you know, it could be that. Um, on the other hand, or on the other side, it is that... Uh, it's that everyone knows that JFK was like the last bastion of something real in the world of like to keep the worst backsliding from happening into depravity and, and, and horror, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of, of whatever was before everyone knows it, but people are too afraid to admit it. Mm-hmm. Right. And like a civil rights leader would not be able to admit that even if it were true. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I don't know how to read it. I truly don't know one way or the other, but it's interesting that this dominates like four or five pages of just this back and forth of what she knows to be true and then what she is saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are two, two separate things. There's also a question here, right? Of, of there, there are other worlds than these, mm-hmm. right? There are versions of people who are everywhere who might be more or less like each other. We know who the last gunslinger is in what will be called mid world, right? In, in the fantasy world. We know who the last gunslinger is in our world, JFK. Mm-hmm. Is Roland JFK? I mean, sure. Is he the mid-world version of, of JFK? Let's see. Um, young aristocrat. Right. Um, not a whole lot of brothers and sisters, so that's different. But a lot of spiritual brothers that's and sisters. That's true, that's true. Well, just brothers, I mm-hmm. guess. But. Uh... Where's Jackie and Marilyn in all this? Oh my well, god! That get, du- oh fuck! We do get a Jackie and Marilyn, don't we? Jesus Christ! Yeah. Wait, so we do get a Susan, right? Uh huh. Oh Christ! Okay. <laughs> Tragically torn away because of the job, uh-huh. right? And ultimately, bad stuff happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't want to read. Yeah, it's never one to one. It's no. never allegorical, right? But Stephen King is putting all these like dominoes up in a row on purpose, right? right. Like. And eventually we find out that it's hyper on purpose, or at least he retroactively kind of cast his whole career in that way. And so, I don't know. It's just an interesting thing to think about. It is. Anyway, but that, I think that's a big what in the King of Verses. Like, here's JFK one more time. Mm-hmm. Um, Janelli's Pizza. Yeah. Janelli himself does, from Thinner does not show up, uh, but it is hard to believe that King could have been working on this book so closely after Thinner and not have been intentional about uh, having one of Balazar's associates be named Janelli. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think Janelli, I think Janelli should be in every Stephen King book. Yeah. <laughs> I think he would make every Stephen King book better if he showed up, did something, and died in every he's, book. That would be cool. He, just, he shows up and he's like, hey there, Dolores Claiborne. 
Yeah, right? <laughs> She's like, hello, Mr. Ginelli. He's like on the ferry passing the island. <laughs> yeah, like I just think it'd be great. He's such a weird character. Uh, you know, he's like this weird ad- abject evil. I don't know. I think he's just, uh, you know, <laughs> what a fun and strange character. Uh, consulting his ma in her opinions. <laughs> yes. I love it. Um, I don't know very many other ones. Like you said, like, uh, you know, a lot of these are just like dark tower things that are going to keep showing up. Um, less than like references to other novels. I don't even think, do we get a Castle Rock in here? I don't think we do. No, we don't. This is like totally a New York novel, really. Um, Like really what happens here is we get the setup of a lot of things that are going to recur later in sort of like Dark Tower adjacent novels uh, that are recognizable precisely because you know drawing of the three, right? So really this is like setting up little paths forward for the Kingiverse rather than uh, doing the thing that we've been talking about mostly uh, is how it like circling back and locking things in yeah yeah this feels like those early novels in that way um and uh no no turtle either no. just notable mm-hmm. no no turtle no beams no guardians mm-hmm. uh, those are words that are going to show up a lot so maybe we can move right to the next segment which is uncle stevie's mixtape mix mixtape it's where we talk about all the songs that showed up in this thing and we give them a rating between one and five stars and these are just purely opinions about what is good and what is bad mm-hmm. Uh, Michael, I think you're first up. So the first song that I had was Just a Gigolo slash I Ain't Got Nobody by David Lee Roth. Um, the song itself is not particularly interesting or notable, but I'm giving this four stars because if you look this up on uh, YouTube, you will find a music video for it that is one of the most uh just fascinating bizarre incredible little things that i've seen and you have you in fact looked this up before the recording and you sent it to me in in discord and i was like i'm gonna mention this because i had seen it myself i because i just didn't write i was like there's a song called just a gigolo by david lee roth Mm -hmm. and so i just went i just looked it up and uh yeah it's what a wild one uh it's a great it's a great music video it's a part of like i guess he did like a, a a tape quote unquote, like, you know, because it's the 80s. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, But it was like a bunch of interview footage and him being, I guess, you know, on tour or something. And it's intercut with like filmed bits. And this is like it it has like almost the tone of like the Weird Al show. If you ever watch Weird Al's like Saturday morning television show that was on like CBS in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, In general, it's got a lot of Weird Al feelings to it because it's him being like, uh, told like what he's going to do by all of these studio heads and then he like has this big song and dance number where he's like dancing around uh he like goes into other people's music videos like he goes into the girls just want to have fun video uh and like crawls through the window in the kitchen while cindy lopper is like dancing in front of her mom uh it, it's an interesting little thing that exists for some reason so check that out <laughs> Yeah, is that the video for Girls Just Want to Have Fun, or is that the video for uh, Good Enough with um, her dad? No, 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 because it's like I, good- I think it's her, because it's like her mom sitting at the table or something. Is it? I don't know. I thought it was her dad from the Good Enough video. Maybe it is the, it the Good Enough video. I, the point is, like, he crawls into a Cindy Lauper music video at one point, <laughs> yes, right? Yeah. He goes through, like, other people's music videos. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. I what what a what a weird thing that exists as a artifact of it, and it's like a like a like a doo wop song kind of sorta, yeah. Like it's got like woo wop boop boop, yeah. But with David Lee Roth behind it, anyway, it doesn't matter. I had to uh, listen to Tuberculosis Lucas and the Sinus Blues by Huey Piano Smith and his Clowns. This is one of the worst things I've ever heard. <laughs> Stephen King loves a fucking novelty song. He does like. 
like the world of novelty songs before and after Weird Al is like astonishing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've never had to hear as many novelty songs as I've had that Stephen King has made me listen to. And good God, they were terrible before. <laughs> uh, Weird Al and his uh, wonderful parodies appeared. Mm-hmm. But uh, this sucks, and it definitely is for clowns. One star. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey Jude by the Beatles. One star. The post-apocalyptic future needs to get itself a new song. <laughs> hey Jude, one star. Uh, Folsom uh, Prison Blues, Johnny Cash. Uh, it's a part of like a long set of terrible jokes that show up in the book that are not good. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think this song is like mid-grade Johnny Cash. This is not my favorite by a long shot. Three stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boy Named Sue by Johnny Cash. Five stars. Oh, easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Uh, People by Barbara Streisand. Five stars. Not a single Barbara Streisand, less than four stars. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barbara killing it for a full 20 years uh, in the late 20th century. Uh, five stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pink Shoelaces by Dodie Stevens. Uh, I only give this two stars because the song is not particularly good, but I also maybe recommend just listening to it because it, it was like a I, I did some research. It's like a one hit wonder from like the late 50s. And I guess the Dodie Stevens, when she recorded it and like wrote it, she was like 13. And the song itself is actually like extremely weird. It's like about dating a boy who has the worst fashion sense in the world. So he wear like the chorus is about him wearing tan shoes with pink shoelaces. And it ends with him wearing like a, a Panama hat with a purple band. Um, right. <laughs> which is like the outfits that are described uh, at the, the climax of the song as he tries to join the military and they won't let him wear ridiculous outfits. So he quits. Brutal. <laughs> uh, we shall not be moved. Uh, you know, civil rights staple by uh, Mavis Staples, weirdly enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, five stars. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. Uh, John Henry, a traditional song. Uh Five stars. I was, like, weirdly obsessed with uh, this song when I was a kid. Like, this idea of a man, like, fighting a machine and then dying. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) That checks out. (laughs) Just honestly. (laughs) If you were like, uh, if just speculate, uh, which uh, American uh, folktales is Michael Lutz obsessed with? John Henry would be at the top of my list, (laughs) for sure. Uh, I had Barbary Allen, which is also a traditional song. Two stars. It's real boring. Um, And it just sounds like every other like song from this traditional period uh, or like, you know, these like English kind of uh, sailing songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, I, they, they rhyme the word dying with everything. Mm-hmm. So it's terrible. Two stars. Uh, Take the a train by Duke Ellington. Another five stars. Like this is, this is the Duke Ellington song or, you know, like one of them, like, damn, mm-hmm. it's good. Mm-hmm. Oxford town by Bob Dylan. I think you can figure this out on your own. <laughs> Take a guess, learned listener, uh, mm-hmm. what what is written in our show doc, uh, and perhaps you'll be correct. Twilight Time by The Platters. Three stars. This is an all right song. Yeah, The Platters. It can't go too wrong with The Platters. Just across the board. Yeah. Great. Michael, what's the next book? Uh, next time, next month, uh, we will be discussing the next Stephen King book, uh, from 1987, and that is what was going to be a Bachman book. We'll be talking about Misery. Mm-hmm, yeah, he de- he thought it would have been published as a Bachman book uh, if Bachman still lived. 
fascinating to me, by the way, I've been reading a lot of the kind of castle rocks around this time. And have you been reading those like pieces on Bachman that King writes occasionally? Uh, yeah, uh, that King is writing. And this was I thought was interesting. Like a lot of people are writing in to talk about Bachman. There's like this this right. push to like understand Bachman uh, basically from all angles almost immediately. Yeah. And so we can talk a, a little bit about that maybe in the next episode, too. But uh, and, it, and also a really interesting thing is that uh, the narrative that we told about Bachman, the, the generally agreed upon narrative that we that we kind of repeated early that Stephen King talks about early mm-hmm. uh, is actually maybe not the right narrative about Bachman. Mm-hmm. I'm going to I'm going to pin that in because it looks like people in Castle Rock figured it out very differently. Um, and that, that, and, but it never made it to national news. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, there's something very fascinating about, uh, apparently with, oh, one of the early Bachman, oh, with the running man, uh, there was a fanzine review of it that, uh, so that just said it was written by Stephen King. Uh, and everyone was like, what are you talking about? And the guy was like, yeah, the, the store I bought it from just said it was Stephen King. <laughs> and so maybe that was like not official or whatever. Right. right. But someone very early had it on. It was like the, and they said that maybe the soliciting agent they bought it from, you know, who was like announcing new releases or talking through new releases told them. So I'll, I'll dig that out and talk about it at some point in the future too. Yeah. Uh, otherwise like just, uh, you know, get your, get your reading hands ready to read misery which Mm -hmm. actually ironically i remember liking quite a bit i don't mm, i don't remember if i've read misery Hmm. or like i i feel confident i have because i remember the end very strongly but i don't it's been a long time it's been since the 80s Mm -hmm. not the 80s but you you travel back in in time to read misery yeah of course Uh I, I went back to the 80s. Yeah. Um, the, uh, okay, yeah. cool, great. Okay. We'll be back in a month. Yeah. All right. And then send them off, Cameron. <sighs> Gotta do it for Steve. There we go.